Welcome to the Critical Witness podcast, where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism, and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to Critical Witness. I'm back and uh, Dan did his solo uh, chat with Jocelyn uh, Downey last, was it last weekend, about vaccines. Feel free to check that out. Uh, We've got Jay Smith with us. Uh, I'll be introducing him in a moment. Feel free to ask us anything about Islam tonight. Feel free to ask really difficult questions. Um, if you are a Muslim and watching, welcome. Uh, feel free to ask anything, uh, and we'll see what we can do to um, yeah answer your questions. Most of them will go to Jay. We'll have some questions ourselves. Don't mind the noise in the background from my dog, if you can hear that. Um, cool. Well, without any real f- further introduction, we've got Jay for a while, um, and I'm just going to hand over to him to introduce himself, and then we're just going to, yeah, Hammer in with questions as he's asked us to do. So uh, start lining those questions up and we'll we'll get through as many as we can. So Jay, welcome. It's great to have you on the show. Um, Could you just give us a real uh, whistle-stop tour of uh, how you you came to faith and your journey and and why should we trust you as um, someone who knows what they're talking about uh, with Islam? And then we'll kind of go from go from there. Okay. I, I can't ask you to trust me. You just have to listen to what I say. And if you don't like what I say, for God's sakes, uh, throw the questions in and let's see if we can work around them. I'm, I'm actually, though I sound like an American, uh, I learned this accent in India. I was, I was born in India. That's where I grew up. Spent my first 17 years there up in the Himalaya mountains. My parents are missionaries. My grandparents are missionaries. I'm third generation. My family's been in India since 1913. So that's over a hundred years, and uh, that's that's really where I grew up in an environment where I was surrounded by Islam. Uh, you probably don't know this, but if you look at the figures, if you just look at the numbers, uh, India is the third largest Muslim country on earth, and almost all the approximately two hundred million Muslims that are there in India are in the north, uh, and that's why, having grown up with Islam all around me, I I have no fear of it. Uh, I don't. I'm not a phobe. Uh, Islamophobe, as many people like to think I am. I don't have a fear of Islam whatsoever, and I don't. But it has shaped me for what I do today, and I am what they call a polemicist. Now, that's a big word. You've probably not heard it before. I go on the offense. That's what polemicists do. It's the offense, unlike apologist or apologetics, which would be the defense. So I do the offense, confront Islam head on. I've been trained to do that. I have two master's degree, one in apologetics, one in Islamics. And I have a PhD in Islamic polemics. That's what my thesis is on. So because of that, I've been working in Islam. We're going on about 38 years now. My wife and I have been working in the Muslim world for about 38 years. 25 of those years in London. And that's really where I learned my Islamic apologetics and my Islamic polemics. Uh, That's where I really cut my teeth. And I would do that by going to a place called Speaker's Corner. Some of you probably know about it. Maybe you've been down there. It happens every Sunday. Not right now because of COVID. It's been shut down. 
but that's where I started going in 1992. And back then in 1992, Speaker's Corner was much more volatile than it is today. Uh, it was much more violent, uh, physically violent. And there were very few of us that were actually engaging with the Muslims, maybe only five of us that were ever there at any one time. And that only happens on Sundays. But that's where I, I cut my teeth. That's where I learned my apologetics. That's where I learned my polemics. Because it's the best place on earth to do that. You get peer-reviewed immediately. Anybody who does, who knows what I'm talking about, if you're in academia and you want to write a book on a certain subject, you have to then wait months for someone to then write an article to, de to either debunk it or debate it or try to discuss with it. And that can take another two or three months before you get a rebuttal. At Speaker's Corner, you get it immediately. And that was such a good practice, an enormously, in, uh, enormously in, engaging environment. It's the only place like it on earth. I don't know of any other place that's quite like Speaker's Corner. It, it is known as the bastion of freedom of speech. And that that's why it is it is such an attraction. It is a magnet for Muslims themselves. And they would come in their hundreds. Uh, back in 1994, uh, no, 1995, uh, I was beat up pretty bad uh, because I was introducing something called historical criticism. I had been studying in 1994 and 1995 under Dr. Gerald Hotting there at School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. Uh, and I was hearing all this brand new historical critic, critical material concerning the emergence of Islam, concerning who Muhammad was. I was hearing things that, like uh, Muhammad, the whole story of Muhammad, his biography was not written down during his lifetime, was not written down after his lifetime. It was not even written down during the same century he lived. He lived, he died in 632. Nothing written down about him, what he did or what he said, his hadith. That was even written down. In the 8th century, well, there is one case, so there is one place where it was written down. So I was hearing these kind of stories, and I was taking them down to Speaker's Corner, and I got pummeled, and I mean physically pummeled even, uh, by the Muslims that were there, because they had not known this. And I was trying to say to them what's the stuff that we were learning back there in the 1990s, that the earliest biography, this one right here, this is the biography of Muhammad. This is known as, well, as you can see, the life of Muhammad by Ibn Ishaq. That is a lie. This has nothing to do with Ibn Ishaq. And see, I was told this by Dr. Uh, Gerald Haunting. Ibn Ishaq, we don't have anything of Ibn Ishaq. This huge tome, all about Muhammad's life, actually comes from Ibn Hisham. Ibn Hisham died in 833. This guy died in 765. That's a 70 years later. So everything we know about this guy named Muhammad comes from 200 years after he died. Now, that should trouble everybody. Thank God we don't have that problem with Jesus Christ. You know, when you look at Jesus' biography... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they talk about what he did. When you look at Jesus' sayings, that would be the Hadith of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John again, the red letter part of the Gospels accounts. Those were written within 40 to at the latest 60 years after Jesus died. And they were written by those people that actually knew Jesus. They were there, eyewitnesses. John and Matthew were eyewitnesses. Mark and Luke would have got it from the eyewitnesses. So you have, if you look at like with like, and this is what I was taking down to Speaker's Corner, doing a like with like, saying, hold on a minute. We can go to 40, 60 years after Jesus died about what he said and what he did by people that actually knew him, were with him for the last three years of his life and wrote down what they saw and wrote down what they heard. You're going to two to 300 years Hundreds of miles, hundreds of years later, and hundreds of miles away, because these characters, Ibn Hisham, Al Wikiri, Sahih, Al Buhari, Sahih Muslim, Ibn Dal, these guys were living up way up in what is today Baghdad. What is today Baghdad? That's hundreds of miles away and hundreds of years later. And you're saying that we're supposed to believe that? Thank God we don't have that problem in Christianity. 
And that's why it was when I was taking this down there and I was seeing the reaction of the Muslims, uh, they started really coming down at me huge. Now, that's where I did my first debate. And I did my first debate with Dr. Jones Badawi in 1995, August of 1995 at Cambridge University on this very problem. And I gave 10 historical challenges that I had got from Dr. Patricia Corona. I had been in the office that week. She was head of department at Cambridge University on, uh, the, on, on Islam uh, in the Near Eastern Department. And she and I, she sat there and she went through all these different points. And she gave me 10 different historical challenges concerning who Muhammad was, concerning how Islam began. And she says, do that. Don't use this. Why don't you, here's a better thing to, here's a better way to say it. Or here's some new information that no one knows yet. And I looked at her and I said, why don't you do this debate? And she says, because I don't have the freedom to do what you have. I have a chair to protect. I belong to an institution. You don't belong to anybody except your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you have no one else that's responsible for you except him. You don't have to say and follow the party line like I have to. I said, she said, you have a freedom I don't have. And so I did this debate with Dr. Jamal Badawi. We gave 10 historical challenges uh, in August. I don't, can't remember the exact date in August. That was, what, 25 years ago we're talking about. And those 10 challenges have not been responded to. No one's been able to respond to them. And then in 2012, this book came out. I don't know if you've seen, if you can read the title, Did Muhammad Exist?, written by Robert Spencer. Taking a lot of the material that I had introduced, it wasn't that he didn't know me. How we never talked. He didn't look at what I had done back at that debate. I don't even think he knew I did that debate. But he was using much the same information that I had gone to. He was going to people like Dr. Patricia Corona. He was going to people like this guy right here, Dr. Robert Hoyland. Dr. Robert Hoyland, who wrote Seeing Islam as Others Saw It. Now, this guy reads and writes 18 languages. Dr. Patricia Krona reads and writes 15 languages. These are scholars. These, I mean, there's nobody that has done what they have done. And they're going back to the original documents. They're going back to the very documents that were written in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, all the way up until the 7th and 8th century. They're going back to the very places that supposedly Muhammad lived. And what he was showing here, if you just read this book, this is another tome written by Dr. Hoyland. He was head of department at Oxford University when I got to know him. And it was fascinating when we, when I was unpacking what they were saying there at Speaker's Corner, using uh, Dr. Patricia Corona, using his material, uh, using Dr. John Wansberg, who had been head of department at School of Oriental and African Studies, who had trained both uh, Dr. Patricia Corona and also Dr. Michael Cook. Who, who, uh, these are known as revisionists. Now, usually when you hear that word revisionist, you hear it's a dirty word. Well, what was fascinating, and they were vilified for even coming up with their books, Hagarism in 1977, a Meccan trade in the rise of Islam in 1987, probably destroyed any notion that there was a city called Mecca in the 7th century or even in the 8th century. Uh, but what did they do? What was their crime? Why were they being vilified? What they did is what every historian should do, what Hoyland did. They went back to the 7th century and they actually looked and saw what was happening on the ground. So seeing Islam as others saw it. Why did he even have to write this title? Well, because nobody in Islam had written anything. There's nothing there in Islam about Muhammad. There is no reference anywhere to a man named Muhammad, no reference anywhere to a city called Mecca, no reference anywhere to a people called Muslims or a religion called Islam or a book called the Quran until 690. Look at the date, 690. Muhammad died in 632. That means for 60 years, no Muslim had written about their religion or about their prophet or about their city or about their God. Oh, I take that back. 
Yes, they did write about their God because their God was known by everybody. Everybody used the word Allah. The Christians used the word Allah. The Zoroastrians used the word Allah. The pagans used the word Allah. It is the name for God in Arabic. It comes from Nabataean Aramaic, uh, which is way up in the north. And so this was all coming out in 2012. Good old Robert Spencer went and dared to write this book with dare to write that title. Now, he was absolutely vilified. He was attacked for daring to ask that question, daring to even stipulate that there might be a problem with Muhammad's existence. You just don't do this in academia. And nobody anywhere has dared to ask that question until he did so and write it on his book. And I give him a lot of credit for doing that. That was in 2012. Right. Well, then we come to 2020. And 2020 has blown this all open. But I'm going to leave it there. I think that gives you enough introduction as to what I've been doing uh, for the last well, 25 years working in this subject. Because this year then, mm -hmm. 2020, you're, so you're going to remember this year because of the pandemic. You're going to remember this year because of the U.S. elections. But that's not why I'm going to remember this year. This is the year that we finally destroyed the Quran and destroyed Muhammad. Now, those are heavy words, and I probably no one on, on your show has said what I just said in the last uh, last minute. Uh, but I oh, stand yeah. by what I'm saying. We are able now to pretty much shut down both Muhammad and the Quran. That's the book of the man, the book of the man. And that is what holds Islam up. You Without the book, without the man, you have no Islam. I would say the same thing with us as Christians. Without our book and without our man, we don't have anything in Christianity. Without the Bible and Jesus Christ, wh where would we go? And remember, these same questions have been asked of Jesus. Remember, these same questions have been asked of Christianity. Remember Wellhausen back in the 1800s, late 1880s. He was the one that asked, how can we believe in the first five books of, 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 the, first five books of the Old Testament? The JEDP documents, the whole documentary hypothesis. Who do you think invented that? Where did that come from? That came from Christians who are asking the very same questions of Jesus Christ about our Bible, about the historicity of whether or not we can trust any of the Old or New Testament. These are good questions, and we have to have these kind of questions. And I thank God for people like Wellhausen, and I thank God for schools uh, in Germany that actually went and and actually posed these questions in the late 1800s, so much so that by 1905, it had decimated the church in Europe. And really, the church has not recovered. Now, we I, need to I do guess. the same thing of every religion, including Islam. I have a few questions. Um, so in regard to sort of whether Muhammad existed, I guess some of the possible pushback could be, well, um, you know, at, at the time, culture of Arabia, primarily a, an oral culture. So... Um, so the fact that, that nothing's actually written down um, may seem unusual to us, but may have been less so uh, within that context. Secondly, what do you mean it's oral? Prove that to me. Well, I was think nothing written down. No, no, absolutely. And I wouldn't be suggesting for a second that nothing was written down. But I think we're in a, in a you know, post uh, post printing press, there's a, there's a greater expectation that information. Okay, stop is, right is there. Recorded. Stop right there. Who's talking about printing press? I'm still asking the same question. Remember, let me just help you there, Dan. Remember, by the time Abu Bakr, Uthman, Umar, Uthman, and Ali, those are the first far caliphs that come after Muhammad. So by 661, Islam, no one disputes of this. Islam now controlled from Tripoli in the west all the way to Afghanistan in the east. That means they controlled all of what is today Iran, all of Iraq. They control all of what is today to Syria, that all of Jordan, all of Israel, all of Egypt, all the way across over to Tripoli in, and all that land in, in Libya. Are you telling me that nobody could read and write in all those lands? No. 
<laughs> no. Okay. Are you telling yeah, me that nothing was written down? No. Okay. So what was written down? So, I mean, what I'm saying is someone could say is that, uh, I guess, secondly, what I, what I would add to that is that the, um, you know, going back to the ancient world, we actually have, you know, a lot of stuff is lost, has been destroyed. So the fact okay. that, so I guess. Let's stop I, I you guess, right there, Dan. I'm going to keep stopping you because you're now making no, mistake no. after mistake. Let, 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 me finish, let me clarify what I'm saying first a little bit more because I, have, I, have, I, I like that you're, you're, you're pushing back. But let me just make the point as strong as I can. Um, I think, in fairness, when you look back in history, you know we do have to we have to we have to appreciate that a lot a lot of the um, a lot of the historical sources have been lost. A lot of the Christian sources have been lost. A lot of ancient Greek resources. You know, we don't have uh, you know don't have evidence of lots of people in history. Uh, you know, if we look at the sort of um, historical evidence around Socrates, you know, um, we don't have anything probably post a thousand years. You know, as a, I'm as talking a about seventh century. Don't go way back to Socrates. I don't care about that. I'm talking about seventh century. <laughs> don't go back to the Old Testament. Stick with the seventh centuries and stick with the area that we're talking about. You're not helping yourself by saying by using material that's 3,400 years ago or even uh, 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 3,000 years ago. What happened 1,400 years ago? Look at this book right here. Was this written down? doesn't seem to not, not not within the tradition isn't it so it's hold on a minute hold on a minute would every would any muslims disagree that this was not written down by the seventh century by 652 would, would they disagree would they agree with you that this was only an oral book and not a written book the muslims i've spoken to would would that that's what i've heard 99.9 percent .9 of every muslim would confront you right with what you just said of course this book is written down who do you think about what do you think Abu Bakr did in 632 and 634? That was the first recension. What did Uthman do in 652? He wrote this down, he sent it to five different cities so that there would be the Qurayshi dialect. How can you write it and send it to seven different six uh, five different cities with a Qurayshi dialect unless it's written down? But isn't that considered least important? I, I've always understood that the um the way they kind of get out of any issues surrounding the 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 Quran in its kind of written form. Is that it was always it was communicated orally, and actually that's the most accurate form of the Quran. Is it's oral, um, the oral. See, now you're falling into the Muslim. This is the Muslim dance that you're falling into, Dan. Yeah. And I'm sorry, you've been you've become you've taken on their argument without even understanding it. I'm going to find what you do with them. Be careful the what you I think he's trying to be. I'm trying to be. I I'm see not, what I'm you're doing, and I think this is the, this is the problem what Christians always do. You're mimicking what the Muslims have said, and you've not even thought it through yourselves. Think through what you've just said. Oh, it was an oral culture. That was the first thing you said. And there now you're daring to say that orality is actually better at, for historicity than the written text. Do you really agree with that as a Christian? Absolutely not. The, yeah, that, Dan's okay, why are you saying that and why are you trying to excuse it? Why haven't you come back and really shut them down on this? Because there's nowhere in the world that I would trust your word right now that, or even trust you unless I filmed you saying it, unless I got something written down. You always go with the textual uh, authority, a way above any orality. So why are you using this argument, Dan? I, I think I think I like this because you, you just keep treating Dan like he's a Muslim. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, 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 absolutely. See, I don't. I, I, I'm not saying I agree with. This. I'm saying these these are things I've heard, and I think I, I would agree with you. Like especially, um, you know, I, I would much, I much, I'd much rather trust. A uh, uh, especially going back to the the seventh century, uh, a written uh, the written form rather than sort of trust uh, oral oral recitation that's sort of taken 
you know, you uh, would not trust that today. You write, you write something, you have a contract, you want to have a contract in hand. You're not going to listen to someone's word and say, okay, now we have, we have agreed upon that you're going to buy this house for 30,000 pounds. Well, 130, uh, 230,000 pounds. I forget where I am. You're in London. Uh, you're not going to buy a house for 600,000 pounds and shake your hands and say, now it's agreed upon. No, you would want something written down. Would you not? The same way, if this is God's holy word, if, if, if this is, as they believe, eternal and was sent down to a man between 610 and 630, 622, it better be written down. And if you're telling me that the only reason that we can even trust is because it had been memorized, I'd like to know what they memorized. Okay, let's, that's the second first problem. The second problem, Dan, with what your statement is, there were enormous amount of written material. Look at all the inscriptions. Look at the rock inscriptions. 30,000 of them. 30,000 rock inscriptions. Nothing about memorization there. But how many Muslims have looked at those rock inscriptions? They're not looking at them because they don't want to look at them. Because when you look at the rock inscriptions, and this is Ilke de, um, Lindstedt, who has done his work on this. He did his PhD studies on this. And he looked at just, uh, he looked between 640 and 740. So 640 and 740, that 100-year period, 640 is immediately after Muhammad's death. 740 is when the Abbasids about ready to come into power. So it, it spans the whole Umayyad dynasty. It spans also uh, Umar, Uthman, Ali, Mu'awiyah, going up to, to the Marwan, then on up to Abdul Malik, all the way up to about when the Abbasids come into power, that 400-year that period. And when he looked at those inscriptions, he found that there is no reference, any of the inscriptions prior to 690, of which there are thousands 30,000s. There is nothing in any of the inscriptions that are dated prior to 690 that have anything to do with Muhammad, anything to do with uh, to Islam or Muhammad, I'm sorry, or, or uh, Muslims, anything to do with Mecca or anything to do with the Quran. Those are the five things we're looking for in the 7th century. It's only at 690 that suddenly Muhammad's name is introduced. Now, that's the same time that he's introduced on the Dome of the Rock, which is a written text. That's not an oral text. This is a written text. It's introduced on the coins, which is written again. Are you hearing me, Dan? These are all written texts, and you need to look at the coins because the coins are probably the best things to look at uh, beyond the rock inscriptions. What's fascinating, when he's introduced on the Dome of the Rock, on the coins, and on the rock inscriptions, he is introduced as the praised one. And it could be that this has nothing to do with a person. It could be nothing more than the praise. It could be even referring to Jesus Christ. Nonetheless, I'm not going to make a, take a position on that today. It isn't until 730 that the rock inscriptions start imposing and he's suggesting that this is a man, a man named Muhammad. And then it's not until that period that you start getting references to prayer. You're getting references to the Shahada. The Shahada, I'm sorry, is introduced in 691. Uh, at the Dome of the Rock, it's also induced on the coins. La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. There is only one God, but God and Muhammad is his prophet. The praised one is his prophet. Referring in the coins to Abdul Malik and referring on the Dome of the Rock to Abdul Malik himself. He is taken on that mantle, that messianic, that messianic figure. But can you then understand, if you want to look at the written text, just follow the written chronology. Don't waste my time with orality because I'm not going to listen to that. Because I don't even know what you're talking about since you have nothing to prove your orality. You have nothing to say. And this idea of orality that you're mimicking is only introduced in this century. It was only introduced by people who don't know what to do with the written text. Because I don't know of any Muslim that would ever, ever admit that nothing was written down. Of course, the Quran was written down. What about the Constitution of Medina? That's a written text. What the Doctrine of Jacobi? That's a written text. What about the traditions? What about all these? You have to, I, I, I think Hadith. one of the issues is you have, you have to come up with an alternative hypothesis don't you so the, the there, there's there's a classical origin story of islam that that begins with uh muhammad so it 
you can make claims about Muhammad not existing, but there has to be, and and I think you know, as you said, you know, there are there are some there are some interesting points about gaps in 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 the written the written tradition and, and literature, etc. But you still, I mean, that's still that that that's raising doubt, but that doesn't that, that doesn't necessarily really explain the origins of Islam. I mean, what what makes most I say common sense? Uh, I, I would say at least would would make sense to have originated with uh, with a with a particular person. Um, I mean, what's what's the alternative that you're offering? Um, what what's the alternative you're offering? So what? How how did how did Islam start? How did the, the Muhammad myth? <laughs> You've originate? already now gone from confronting me now to ask me to not put it to make sense of it all. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> how long did it take me to get you to do that? Come on, you got to do better than that, Dan. Come on, hit go, me for things of that. Put your dollar hat. Go, go Phil. You're next. <laughs> now he wants me to fill in the gaps. It's like it's my responsibility well, well, it's, to tell you. I will do that, but not. You've already given up it's, on the fact it's, it's, that there's nothing there to support it. I still want to get back at you, Dan. Show me anything that supports Muhammad, Islam, Muslims, the Quran, or Mecca from the seventh century. Now we've been going. How, how much time we've been going? And you still haven't come up with anything. We've been going almost a half hour. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I mean that that might be the case. As I said, there are there are gaps. I think even if you oh, look wait, wait, at is the, that might or is the case? If if you if you look at the Christian narratives, let's look at the Christian. Let me just use that as an example. So, um, if we if we Jesus died either thirty or thirty three A.D. the the first the first uh, manuscript evidence we actually have the earliest is what probably if we if we're being conservative one twenty five A.D. which is P fifty two is a part of John's Gospel. So that's that's nearly a hundred years since um, you know from from Jesus Jesus death on the cross. Um, can I know, support, I, can I shut you down on that one real quickly? Yeah, yeah, go, go Let for me it. say who, that you're talking to me about the gospel accounts. Let's just see. Let's just ask. You're saying you're suggesting therefore that Jesus did not exist. Maybe you're not, but you want to see what are the support we have for Jesus? Why well, got, forget oh, about the gospel yeah. accounts? Let's go to Thelus and Flagon. Thelus and Flagon were debating the the person of Jesus Christ. They were debating the day he died. They're saying that the time the time he died, the earth shook and the sun went dark. That was in 52 A.D. That's within 30 years of Christ's death. You have Greek scholars who are already talking about his death and resurrection. Uh, death, sorry, not his resurrection, just his death. You have Tacitus. Who who hated Christians. He was a Roman historian, writing in the late second century. He not only talked about Jesus Christ and his death, he gives us the date. That's why you know it's 33 AD, because it happened during the time of Pontius Pilate under the time of, uh, um, of who's the emperor at that? Tiberius. That's why we know it's 33 AD. Then you have Josephus, the who's a Roman. When's the earliest man? Then you have Josephus, who, who is a Jewish historian, who is writing in the late first century, early second century, who is not only talking about who Jesus was and his death, he even refers to the fact that Christians believe he rose from the dead. So I've given you three references from three different non-biblical sources that are both hostile sources that said that Jesus did exist. Now, we could go and we could bandy about and say, have they been doctored later on? Possibly. I have no idea. But can you then see that we're not talking about 2,000 years ago, we're only talking about 1,400 years ago. I still am asking you, show me something from 1,400 years ago that supports that Muhammad existed. Um, just just to um, is it, have, have you come across anything? What, what, what is the general pushback yeah, yeah. on that? Because my, my knowledge yeah. is right. usually a pushback. And, and listen, Dan, I'm not expecting you to know all this. This is new stuff for you. But for most of those who are pushing back, they do go to things like the Constitution of Medina, uh, which is... Uh, the, which is the the document that supposedly Muhammad put together in 620 
622, between 622 and 624, when he first met the Medina, to inculcate all the groups together and the bandy under one text. That is not even referred to. In fact, we don't have any reference for that until the ninth century. The first time it's even introduced is there uh, by Ibn Hisham in 833. So that's already too. 200 years too late. Uh, other people have gone to the Doctrine Iacobi, which is a document written by Christians. Uh, again, uh, referring to a person, a prophet, someone who referred to him, who is a prophet who was in Jerusalem and destroying Jerusalem, uh, not destroying, but killing an awful lot of people in Jerusalem. Take a look and you will see that that has nothing to do with Muhammad. It could be, it was probably anybody who, who was attacking uh, Jerusalem would call himself a prophet. Everybody called themselves prophets in those days, but Muhammad never was in Jerusalem. So that even confronts the, uh, that confronts the traditional account. You also have what they call the Ashtonami letter. Uh, the Ashtonami letter, which is in St. Catherine's Monastery, that is in Egypt, uh, which is a letter supposedly written. And there's a whole litany of these letters, but the Ashtonami is the best. The Ashtonami letter, if when you look at it, you realize that this was written in Egypt because the Arabic that is used there is Egyptian Arabic. It's Coptic Arabic. More than that, it is a much later Arabic. And on top of that, it has pictures of minarets and it has uh, uh, it, it refers to mosques. Mosques were never referred and didn't have that name that early. There were no minarets until the 11th century. This is actually a document that was written in the 16th century, redacted back to the 7th century with Muhammad's hand supposedly on it, proving that this is a, as fraudulent as you can get. These are all frauds. So there has, been a, there has been an attempt to try to find something from the 7th century, and the only thing they can find are things like this, letters supposedly written by Muhammad. In every case, you can pretty much debunk them very quickly just by looking at the text, looking at the script, looking at the type of Arabic that's used, because Arabic evolves from century to century. But more than that, you can just look at the content, look at the internal content, and you realize that, that these were all much later uh, redact redactions because they need it. Listen, Muslims today really need something to prove that he that he even was even there or existed. Hmm. Why, why, if they um, if they weren't uh, you know primarily an oral culture, why did they depend so much on Nestorian scribes, Christian scribes? If they didn't have the sort of, oh, I would suggest, uh, I would suggest because most of most of the earliest, the earliest raiders were uh, those who were actually uh, moving from place to place and and doing and 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 eradicating the the offense. Because Mary, remember, if you look at this, is why it's it's important that you look and see what's happening historically at that time. Look and see what's going on in that period. And what you do have is you have two great empires that were warring with each other way up in the north. One was called the Byzantine Empire, which is over in the west, and the other was called the Sassanian Empire, which is the Persian Empire, and they had started battling each other for about uh, 5th century, 6th century, up until the 7th century. The problem that they had were these Arabs in the desert were a pain in their side. So what they did, the uh, the Byzantines had the Ghassanids and they paid them to keep the Arabs in the, in the deserts. On this side, the, the Sassanians had the Lachmids and they paid them to keep the Arabs in the desert. That was okay and those were buffer states that kept them at bay, providing they got paid. After 200 years of warring with each other, they just ran out. Their treasuries were dry. And so they weren't paying them anymore. Once they weren't paying them anymore, a vacuum existed because there was nothing really there to stop to, to stop these, these uh, Arabs coming in and moving into that vacuum. Now, remember, those Arabs, many of them were Nabataean, and they did not live anywhere near Mecca and Medina. There is no reference of any of these Arabs living in Mecca and Medina. We can't find anything from Mecca and Medina. Oh. I lie. There is some reference to a place called Yathrib, which was, became Medina, but nothing from Mecca at all. They were much further north in what is today Jordan and also what is today Petra. They, their headquarters, well, actually their major city was Petra. That's why all of Dan Gibson's material, I don't know if you're familiar, Dan Gibson's Kibla, this book here, 
all of the earliest temples, which later became mosques, are all facing Petra up until 706. That's the 8th century. Not one is facing Mecca until 727. Why does that matter? That's well into the 8th century. Why does that They're matter? Proving that all of these Arabs then were moving it, but the problem is they were great warriors, but they did, were they were nomadic. They did not know they did not know how to run cities, which are urban structures, which have an enormous are very sophisticated, and therefore what they did is they used their cousins. Their cousins meaning those who came from the Abrahamic faith, uh, those who came through Isaac, the Jews and the Christians. They were the ones that were not only able to run cities; they were already living in the cities. And so they just basically used them as maulas or moalis. That's the name they give them. They were like indentured servants. They ran the cities for them while they went off and plundered other cities. And they kept on mm -hmm. moving, going off the west across North Africa, boom, 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 and going east all the way up, over up into Afghanistan, and finally into India. So that by the end of the uh, the 7th century, by the time Abdul Malik comes to power, the empire existed all the way from India, sorry, India here over to Spain, Andalusia, as it's called then. Here, all that swath was under land. Who is going to run that for them? It was the Christians and Jews that did so, because the Christians and Jews were clever. They were also uh, they were also very highly trained and very sophisticated. But here's the problem: the Christians and Jews were their cousins through Abraham, right? But the Christians and Jews had a prophetic race. The Arabs didn't. They were Ishmaelites. They were in the line of Hagar. They called themselves Hagarines. Look at the names they call themselves. They didn't call themselves Muslims. They called themselves Haggadines. They called themselves Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites did not have a prophetic line because nothing happens after Ishmael. Look at Genesis chapter 17. You'll see what happens. I will bless Ishmael. He'll have 12 sons and he'll have, be the ruler of 12 nations. But my covenant, my covenant is with Isaac. My covenant is with Isaac. And you don't hear much about Ishmael after that. Almost everything comes in the line of Isaac. So here's the, the second problem is these I, people that in the line of Isaac, the Jews and the Christians, they not only have a prophetic line, they have a prophet. And they have a book. The Arabs have no book. There is no revelation. So what are you going to do? Well, here comes other Malik. They've now been in power for about 40 years, well, 30 years, because Mu'awiyah is really the first one that we see that is really of this group, this ilk, this that will come become Muslims. And he is the first one that actually coins, mints coins in his own image. That in and of itself should be a problem. How can you mint coins in your own image? How can you have images on anything? Hmm. According to all the traditions of the 9th and 10th century, no images are allowed from the time of Muhammad. Why haven't anybody looked at that? Why haven't anybody questioned that? More than that, when you stop and look and see what these coins are, what these coins do, always whenever someone comes to power, whenever you're a caliph or a king or an emperor or whatever, what's the first thing you do? Well, you don't have radio. You don't have internet. You don't have podcasts like we have here to introduce yourself. You don't even have newspapers. The only thing you have to introduce yourself as the new emperor, as the new leader, is coins. Coins are the only thing you, and that's why they would use, of course, coins are used for commerce, but they're also the used to introduce the new leader, the new king, the new emperor, the new caliph. And that's why every king minted his own coins. And remember, look, the mints did exist. This is getting back to uh, what you, uh, another problem that, that Dan hasn't uh, brought, uh, that I'm getting back to Dan on. The coin, the mints did exist. Up in the West, all the mints are still there. You can see them. They're listed. They're all in Syria. In the east, the mints are all in what is today Iran. And interestingly, Iran would have all been Zoroastrian. Syria would have all been Christian. Now, the coins that were being minted, and they were being minted at the time that Muhammad existed, or Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and Ali, these coins were coming out, and they were coming out with the names of the leaders, and they were Arabs. 
but they're in the West. All of the coins are have crosses on them, including Mu'uwiyah. Mu'uwiyah has a cross, and he has a cross above his head. What's he doing with a cross if he's a Muslim? In the eastern part, and this is written material, Daniel. You listen, this is not orality. Mm -hmm, in yeah. the eastern part, those coins all have fire altars, Zoroastrian fire altars. So those are all Zoroastrians over here, Christians over here. No reference whatsoever to Muhammad or Uthman or Ali. or We can't find any reference anywhere to these first four caliphs. Mu'uwi is the first one we have reference to. And when he introduces his coins, he is a Christian all the way up until 680. Now, by the time Abdul Malik comes to power in 685, he is the first one that now wants to introduce his own prophet, wants to introduce his own book. So what do you do? You introduce it with coins. Like like everybody, and, and you are paying homage to Justinian II, who's the great Byzantine emperor, and you've been paying homage to him. But you take coin, and you introduce it in 692, and on that coin, you have images that always had crosses on them. Now you take the crosses off, and you put on the backside, instead of the Byzantine cross that's always been there, you take that off, and you put your own uh, column, which is just a rod with a circle on it, which is a mockery of the cross. And you introduce la 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 in Muhammad Rasulullah. That's where the Shahadas first introduced on that coin. Justinian goes to war against Abdul Malik because of that. So the very next year in 693, you introduce a brand new coin. And this coin, you put your own image on it. There is a picture of Abdul Malik with a sword saying, I'm going to war. This is an in-your-face kind of slapping in the face of, 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 of Justinian II. But you don't just do that. You also go to Jerusalem. You're up in Damascus, remember. All these Arabs had their headquarters in Damascus. Why has anybody never questioned that? If they are really Muslims, why don't they have the headquarters in Medina and Mecca, in the Hejaz? No one's ever questioned that. They're always up in Damascus. Mu'awiyah is up in Damascus. All the Marwanids, all the Sufyanis, all of the Malik, they're up in Damascus. And what you do, you go down to Jerusalem and you build the greatest religious structure of its day. Why in the world in Jerusalem, why not done in Mecca, if Mecca even existed? Well, the obvious right answer is there was no Mecca. And why Jerusalem, since that's not where you're from? Look and see where the Dome on the Rock is built. It's built up on the hill, looking down, overlooking the Church of the Sepulcher. This is an attack against Christian, Byzantine Christianity. Why? Because your greatest threat, politically speaking, are the Byzantine Christians. Not the Sassanians, not the Abbasids, Abbasids over in Stesiphon, which now today is Baghdad. It is the Byzantine story. It, this is a political dress gesture, but it's also a theological polemic. Because in that building, on the inner ambulatories, the two inner ambulatories, the only part of the building that still exists today that's original, you then write inscription after inscription attacking Jesus Christ. There is no reference on that Dome of the Rock about Muhammad going up to heaven, about Muhammad going up to the seven heavens, which is why the Dome of the Rock is for Muslims today. If you ask a Muslim why the Dome of the Rock is there, it's to commemorate that event. There is no reference about the Mirage. That's called the Mirage. Nothing about the Mirage. It's all attacking Jesus. Say not three. That's attacking the Trinity. For God is one and he has no son. That's attacking his divinity and his sonship. Truly, he neither does he begetteth nor is he begotten. That's attacking John 3.16. Folks, if you want to see why Islam was created, it was created to attack us. It was created to attack Jesus Christ. From its very earliest inscriptions, they've been attacking us. Now, these then you introduce on your coins. And by 696, then, you then take off the image. No more images after that. From 696, look at the coins, and you will see all the coins 
have writing on the front and writing on the back, and everything on the front and in the back is attacking Jesus Christ. Islam was created to attack us. Why am I saying this? Because I'm looking at the evidences on the ground, and I'm not looking at the 9th and 10th century uh, traditions and trying to redact them onto these images. You cannot do that as historians, and that's been our problem. Everybody that I've talked to for the last, my goodness, 38 years that I've been working in Islam, all they try to do is try to interpret everything they know about the 7th century from the 9th and 10th century. We would never do that as Christians. Nobody would do that as a historian. Why in the world are we allowing the Muslims to do that, and why are we following into their trap hmm. by mimicking and mocking and mimicking exactly what they're saying without thinking it through? As a historical exercise, you always, always go back to the event. You always go back to the time of that event. You always go back to the person of that event. You always go back to the time period. And then you look at the evidence that's in your hand, and then you say, this is what the evidence is saying, and this is what I think is happening. You don't sit there and say, well, this is what they told me to say. This is what they think was happening, because that's 9th and 10th century. That's all about it. That's way up in Baghdad. They were never there when that happened. They were never around. They were never even near when that was all going on. And that narrative was created. It took them almost 100 to 200 years to create that narrative. And that narrative is all attacking the Umayyad narrative, which would make sense because this is nothing more than a political attack. These are attack after attack against the Umayyads. And this is what you would expect when empires are born and when they're uh, when they're created. So, But on top of that, you need to have a book and you need to have a man to support and hang everything on. That's why they had to introduce Muhammad by 730. Once they introduced the man, then they had to give him a story. And that's why it took them not, it took them another 70 years to get that story together. And that's why that story was finally introduced in seven, I'm sorry, uh, um, 833 but they still didn't have the sayings. And that's why we know very well that Al-Buhari was given 600,000 of these sayings of this prophet, and he whittles them down to 7,397. That means he throws out 98% and only retains 2%. How in the world and, and where do you in the world did they, would you throw out 98% unless you had an agenda, unless you were trying to create a narrative at that time? So two questions. So why, why are, are Islamic, uh, are Muslim scholars listening to, to, this, to this evidence? So that <laughs> and, Would and, you and, listen to this if you were a Muslim scholar? And secondly, um, what, what if there have been responses from, from scholars or, or I know, uh, popular level uh, um, polemicists, uh, apologists, etc., what, 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 what have they been? Ra rather than attacking you, I know there's been attacking, but what, in terms of the actual substance of what you said, has there been? Dan, do you know of anybody that's responded to this? Not that I'm aware of, no. What have they? What has been their response? Um, Jay is an Islamophobe. Jay is a Muslim hater. That's called ad hominem. What happens when you use ad hominem? Did you see what happened on November 26th, about three weeks ago, when Yasser Qadi put up that 51-minute diatribe against me and David Wood and Dan Brubaker? Why do you think he had to do that? Safe face. Uh, because of these books right here. Hmm. This is even more damaging than what I've just been doing. How long have we been going now? We've been going for about 45 minutes. If you want to get into damaging material, talk about these. Because this is much more damaging than anything we've just talked about. Because this, these are these are books that you can read. There, you can put, you can buy these books on, in the internet. I got these in July. You can buy them, and not one of these is the same, and all of them are in Arabic. Not one of them is a translation, and every one of these are supposed to be original, and every one of these are supposed to be in heaven, and every one of these are supposed to be the ones that Muhammad received from six ten to six thirty six thirty two. So what now? What, try to answer me that one. 
Okay, what's the difference then about someone just saying, well, Christians say, well, you know, here I've got a stack of 20 Bibles. I've got the NLT, the ESV, the NIV, the uh, the KJV, the NKJV. And look, they all say different stuff and they're all worded differently. And, and look, the KJV has got something about the Trinity in there and then the, and then uh, later editions don't don't have it. So what, what's the difference of a Muslim just saying, look, I can do the same thing with... Dan, you um, can do better than that. What? <laughs> Stop. I need to get Dan a dollar hat. This is gonna, Come Dan, on, Dan. Dan you can do better thing. than that. Okay, I'm not going to answer that. I want you to answer it right now. Stop and think how stupid that is. <laughs> I know, I know how stupid it is. I'm just okay, to... I want you to answer it then. Let's see if you can answer what you just said. Oh, Dan, shall, shall I shall I be the uh, shall I answer it? I feel like uh, I feel like you're taking all the heat. <laughs> I'll answer for Dan. Dan can answer it. But uh, so I mean, just just the basic of translation, isn't it? So you got. So are you those saying all those, in English? Those, those books. The Bible your... was never written in English. I know. Can you believe how stupid that sounds? I know. I'm just. I'm just trying to think. Of... What are you talking? Who who says that the Quran was written in English or the Bible was written in English? I thought the KJV. Now, if was you were to tell me now, Dan, if you were to give me now all thirty different New Testaments written in Greek, then I would listen to you. Now I want you to listen. I want you to list right now thirty New Testaments written in Greek right now. Listen, and all of them different. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they'll, they'll. I mean, we we could find differences in terms of spelling and and word scribal errors and things in different absolutely Syria but you cannot say that as a muslim but i know and that's yeah. what i'm saying is what, what what's interesting i think about the whole debate is that they the muslims have set such a high threshold um for the trans muslims well okay well the muslims narrative have not set this the quran has set this threshold okay the quran has done that and it's such a high Where... standard that it's 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 almost impossible to uphold without ignoring key data whereas christians you know uh, you know we would say right the original manuscripts we would say right perfect but because it invo- the transmission process involves fallible human beings you know we accept that there might be scribal errors and in, in, in the transmission and things like that so what's to stop muslims from saying i, I you know actually saying look um uh you know this is untenable but now we we hold more of a christian view the original the is that the, the quran that was first communicated to, to muhammad was was accurate but since then because of fall- fallible human beings involved in the transmission process there were some errors that have been introduced and that and that's why jay has these different qurans and there are slight differences but actually no key doctrine is actually affected by any of those differences or, or missing uh, arabic words real quick dan what does the quran say the quran says that this is eternal this is reser- preserved on eternal tablets chapter 85 verse 22 so the quran saying it's not muslims the Quran says in chapter 10, verse 15, in chapter 18, verse 27, that there is not one difference between any Quran. The Quran is absolutely the same. It has never changed. Not one word, not one letter. Not one word, not one letter. Chapter 15, verse 9, Allah preserves the Quran so nobody can change it whatsoever. No human is capable of changing this book because Allah will preserve it. So that's not the Muslim saying that. That's the Quran itself making those claims. Can you see the dilemma for Muslims? Yeah, that's absolutely. why I don't blame Yasser Qadi. Yasser Qadi is caught between a rock and a hard place. And I thought what he did on June 8th was actually very honest. Because these are all written by men. These all have names on them. Wash, Kalun, Ibn Amir, Ibn Kathir, 
These are just nine puffs, nine of 30 that are now official. And what these are, according to Muslims, is that every one of these was revealed to Muhammad, at least seven of them, seven of them, sorry, seven of them were revealed to Muhammad before he died in 632. And these are nothing more than dialectical differences, all right? First problem. If these are dialectical differences, how do they know that these came from Muhammad since not one of these at all, not one of them, is from that time period? The earliest is this one right here, right here, Ibn Ahmed. This is the earliest of all of them. Okay? This is the very first one that was written. Look at the date. 736. When did Muhammad die? 632. So did this exist at the time of Muhammad? This is over 100 years later that this was finally written down. Again, this is nothing more than a 21st century printed edition. We don't even have the earliest manuscript at all for any of these. We just have to go on their word. But even what they're telling us... This was written in seven or just prior to 736. So it's not even written in the same century that Muhammad lived. Can you see the problem? And if that's the earliest, they continue all the way up until 905, from 736 all the way up to 905. They were not even chosen until 936 by a guy named Ibn Mujahid. 936 by Ibn Mujahid. He that's the 10th century, so it's 300 years later that he chooses the first seven. And that includes Nafi, Ibn Kathir, uh, Abu Amr, Ibn Amr, uh, um, Asim, Hamzai, and Khalaf. Those are the first seven. Those are the what they call the seven that were revealed to Muhammad by, by Jibril. No, they were not revealed to Muhammad by Jibril because they only begin to appear in 736. Muhammad died in 632. So you can shut that one down very quickly. What's more, by 652, though there were seven that supposedly existed because Muhammad said these seven are okay, Uthman burned every other one and only retained one. And that was the Qureshi dialect. Now, which is the Qureshi? Is that Nafi? Is that Ibn Kathir? We don't know. Because those are the only two that come from Mecca and Medina. The other five come from Iraq and Syria, up much further north. But what we do know, according to the Islamic tradition, according to al-Buhari, volume 6, hadith number 509 and 510, Uthman takes all the other manuscripts, all the other Qurans that disagreed with the one that he had retained there, the Qureshi dialect, and he burns them. That means he destroys them. And then he sends each one uh, a copy of the Qureshi dialect that had been created by Zaidi bin Thabit, his, the secretary of Muhammad, and sent one to Yathrib, uh, sent one to Medina, sent one to Basra, one to Kufa, and then one up to, one up to Damascus. That means five, which means there were no other Qurans by the time, of, uh, by the time Uthman died in six uh, six, uh, 656. He dies in six. He's killed in 656. No other Qurans existed, right? Just one Quran. Am I correct? Are you following me this so far? Mm -hmm. Then where did the others come from? Well, these start being introduced in the 8th century. And the reason these were introduced, now here's where you are correct, Dan. The reason these are introduced is because when you look at the Arabic, and I don't expect you to know what have to read Arabic, but if you look at Arabic, it all is dependent on consonants. And the original Arabic had no vowels and had no dottings, much like the original Hebrew, ancient Hebrew. And there were only 16 letters, uh, 16 letters that existed in the 7th century. And this is known as Nabataean Aramaic. This is the Arabic that is from way up in Petra. There was This Arabic did not even exist in Mecca and Medina. That's another real problem for Muslims. 
this Arabic that we have in the Quran is not from Mecca and Medina, is not from the Hijaz. The, the Arabic that existed in Mecca and Medina was known as Sabaic Arabic from Yemen. And that Arabic did have dots and vowels. Isn't that one of the ironies? What about Kufic script? I thought the earliest Quran, uh, the Quran no, 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 written in Kufic script is nothing. Kufic script, you're talking about ancient history. You're not, the, the Kufic script is, I'm sorry, Kufic script is not even introduced until the 8th century. So don't worry about the Kufic script right now. That's okay. much, much later. Okay, that's another 100 years later. We're talking about the Arabic. We're talking about the text, okay? We're not talking about the script so far. We're just talking about the letters. Well, however, where it's written doesn't matter. We're looking just at the letters. When you're looking at the letters, there's 16 letters. And when you look at those 16 letters, there's many different ways to read it. That was the problem. Because they use Nabataean Aramaic, which means that whoever wrote this first earliest Quran had to been living up in near Petra, had been living up in Jordan, not in Arabia. That's the difficulty. When they realized that they could not read what there was being written, and if you look at all the earliest manuscripts, the ones that have been retained today, like the Topkapi, the Samarkand, the Ma'il, the Hauseni manuscript, the uh, Petropolitanus manuscript, and the Sana'a manuscript, the six major manuscripts, they do not have dots and vowels. Let me be careful with that. There are some dots that have been added at a later date in a different color. But when they were first written, they did not have dots and vowels. And so the difficulty was, because they didn't have dots and vowels, they could not know what they were reading. And that's why they had to quickly invent these dots. So there are five dots that were invented. One dot above the letter makes a na, two dots makes a ta, three dots make a tha, one dot below the letter makes a ba, two dots make a ya. So it could be na, ta, tha, ba, ya. You have five different possibilities for every smiley face you're looking at. And every word has three smiley faces, or roughly three smiley faces. So if you start putting dots all over the place, and with three, you can come up just with three letters next to each other, making one word, you can come up with anywhere from 19 to 33 different uh, different different words, completely different words. Therein, since you had so many different possibilities, if you can have upwards of up to 33 different words with just a dot, can you then imagine if you have a whole sling of words that make a, a, a verse or a sentence? So what was happening is all these different scribes in the 8th century up in Baghdad, now it's called Baghdad, it's no, called, no longer called Stesiphon, up in Baghdad and in Kufa and in Damascus, and in Basra, primarily those major cities, they were starting to put dots all over the place. And they were coming up with all their different Qurans. And that's why you have all these different names. And as many as 700 different Qurans were being were created by the 10th century. By the 10th century, when Ibn Mujahid realized that there was a problem here. How can you have 700 different Qurans? So he chose seven. And he chose three from Kufa, one from Basra, one from Damascus, and two from the Hijaz, one from Mecca and one from Medina. Those are the seven, right? For Because of that, that was supposedly was closed. No, no, that wasn't closed, because this guy is not in that list. Did you notice? Nafi, Ibn Kathir, Ibn Amir, Abu Ibn, Asim, Hamza, Khal, Al-Qasai. What about this guy right here? This is the one that's used all over the world today. This is the canonical text that everybody uses. Well, everybody? What about these? This is the one you use, right? That's not in the original seven. There was a problem. So they then had to realize that with all this plethora of different Qurans, and they were different Qurans, these weren't different translations in English, okay? These were actually Arabic. All of them were Arabic, just like Greek New Testaments. 700 Greek New Testaments. You would have a problem, wouldn't you? So what would you do if you were suddenly handed 700 different Greek New Testaments? What would be the first thing you did as a textual critic? Well, I want to look for the earliest one. 
Okay, so we look for the earliest one. So that's this guy right here, 736. And then what would you do? Uh, compare, it, compare it with the others, read it. Which means you have to open it up, right? Yeah. And read the text, right? Is that um, what they that would, did? That would probably be the most authoritative one is the earliest is generally the case, isn't it? Okay, well, that's the most, that's the earliest because the date, because he died in 736, earliest. But next, what you would do is you would open it up and read the script and compare it with the script of the earliest one, right? Sure. They did open one page. They didn't read one word. So how did they choose all these different guys? How did Ibn Mujahid choose the, the first seven? I think I heard, but he I can't remember. <laughs> he basically went to see how many different students he had, and whoever had the most students right. was chosen. It had right. nothing to do with textual criticism; had everything to do with popularity. Is that how you would? Um, is that how you'd use a text? Uh, choose a text for the uh, the new New Testament? It wouldn't be my preference. No, <laughs> I wouldn't be there. I wouldn't build trust. No. So, but look, is is that a cult, cultural aspect of it? Like, I, I don't understand why that would be. Well, I guess it's a power play, and maybe that says a lot about Islam. But it has all to do with popularity. There has never been any textual uh, uh, textual criticism done for any of these manuscripts. No one has done what we did with the Bible. No one has dared to do with what we've done to the Bible. Can you then say, but listen, we haven't even stopped yet. Remember, then by 11, uh, 1194, another guy comes up. His name is Al-Shatibi. Al-Shatibi. So we're talking about the 12th century. We're talking about the 12th century. Muhammad died in the 7th century. Where 500 years later, he decides there's still so many Qurans. Let's choose two for each one of these guys. And let's choose the two that are the most important for each of these guys because they have the most readers, the most people that come after them, the, the most number of students. So he chose two for each one of the seven. So now, so now another 14 are added to the list. That's done in, in, in uh, 1194. But that's still not good enough. Another guy comes in 1429. So now we're into the 15th century. Now we're 800 years after Muhammad. Another guy comes in. His name is Al-Jazari. Al-Jazari then chooses another three readers and six of his students that come after him. So that makes nine. So you book nine to 21, you get now 30. 30 are chosen in uh, uh, 1429. So you're talking about 800 years after Muhammad. You now get the 30 official ones. And all of them were chosen by popularity. Not one of them was chosen by whether or not the, the text was anything near like or anything to do with that. Now, you then come finally to 1924. You come to the 20th century. And there in Cairo, in the city of Cairo, you have a problem because you have students sitting down at standardized tests. And as they're sitting down and want, listening to these standardized tests, uh, they're writing their what they believe are the answers to the standardized tests, and they're sending them into the professors. And the professors are reading 30 different answers because they are their students. Each student is using whatever Quran that their family has grown up with, has memorized. They're using the Qurans from their own family. And many of them are not using are not using the standard one because the standard one, there was no standard, but they were using Warsh. He was very popular in North Africa because he comes from Egypt. They were using this guy here. The difficulty is this is Huff's, this is Warsh. There are 5,000 differences between these two books. 5,000 different words. So 5,000 different meanings. Jay, so how do Muslims actually... How, how do Muslims live with this then? Because if we're, if we're saying... They haven't heard it until June 8th. 
no, 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 no. What I'm saying, I'm going going back a bit. I mean, I'm saying that we've got all these, we've got the, the, the seven Qurans, okay? So if you're saying that each of them is different, okay, but you're also saying that in the Quran it says that, you know, it's uh, that the, the Quran, not one word can change. So how on the one hand the, uh, of Muslims are you saying they've never reflected or thought there's any inconsistency with that between in the Quran it says uh, yeah. no word yeah. no word will change, but there are seven different Qurans that you're talking like a Christian who has had historical criticism jammed down your throat now in textual criticism for 200 years can you see the problem with the question Muslims have never heard what you've just said Muslims have never heard what I've just said Muslims are not taught to do that let me tell you why take a look did you did you look at that interview between Muhammad Ijab and Yasser Qadi back on June 8th yes yeah if you could okay. just sum summarize what happened that'd be good We've seen well, it. In order to summarize what happened, we need to go back to 2016. Okay. We need to go back to 2016, four years ago. Uh, and the reason this all came to the fore was because of one little lady who lives in London. Her name is Hatun Tosh. And do you know her? Yes. No, no of her. I'd like to get her on the channel at some point. You've got to bring her on board. This woman has has done more to destroy the Quran than any other one woman I know. She's only five foot two. She's from Turkey. She was on my team. We were, uh, I had met her at Oka, Oxford Center of Christian Apologetics, because I was teaching there at Oka, and she was my student. She thought I was arrogant, which is true. I come across as being arrogant all the time because <laughs> I'm so confident in what I'm saying. And, and, and I say that as a joke, but it's true. I mean, this is just the way I come across. And so she thought I was arrogant because she had been, uh, she'd grown up as an imam's daughter. She had grown up in Islam her whole life. Uh, she had always been taught that there was only one Quran and that there was not one word, not one letter different, not even one dot she had been taught, not even one diacritical dot was different. No vowelization was different. Now, that, that, that complete is stupid because those that were only invented in the 8th and ninth century. Nonetheless, this is what she had been taught. And here I was talking to her and telling her about all this stuff, and she just thought she wanted to get walk out of class. But I had mentioned that I go down to a place called Speaker's Corner every Sunday, and I get up on a ladder, and I take on hundreds of Muslims at a time, uh, which if anybody would like to come down with me. And so she decided to come down because Oxford's not too far from, uh, uh, from London, and so it's only about an hour's drive. So she came in, and she came that next Sunday, and she never stopped coming. She fell in love with Speaker's Corner. And you can see why when you look at her personality. She is actually born for Speaker's Corner. She's an amazing debater. The woman has a tenacity like no one I've ever seen. Jump to 2013. In 2013, or maybe it was 2014, one of those years, she was on our team. She'd come and she would, she would get up on the ladder with me every Sunday. Because I've never met somebody as tenacious as her. I've never met somebody who is as courageous as her. I've ne met, never met somebody who can learn things as fast as she does. She actually can put you to shame, and she's very intimidating to be around because she only ever, ever uh, uh, talks about the gospel. She will only ever talk about the gospel and confront Islam. She will not do any small talk. Don't take her out to dinner. She doesn't have any taste. Of, uh, 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 she has no sense of taste. <laughs> uh, she's never had any sense of taste so she doesn't really care about food she just needs it to, to live but also don't try to get her into small talk she will just go right back to the gospel or about jesus christ and she'll you'll, she'll make you look stupid if you don't have the answers for what she's asking so here she was down went to north africa to do some training to a group that's down there and she went into a bookstore to get a quran she wanted to get an arabic quran to, to train up the students there now remember this woman doesn't read arabic at all even though she grew up in, a, in a, a Turkish family, her father was an imam. She doesn't read any Arabic. So she wanted to get an Arabic Quran just to show the people because they all could speak Arabic there in North Africa. And uh, the guy behind the counter says, well, which Quran do you want? And she kind of says, what do you mean, which Quran? He said, well, we've got here Warsh and we've got Ibn Amir and we've got Hafs here and we've got Ibn Kasai. He says, hold, hold, hold on a minute. You've got more than one Quran? 
He says, yeah, we have about six here. Which one do you want? She says, well, give me them all. So she bought them all. They only cost a few dollars. And she brought them back to London and showed them to me. And I started laughing because I had no idea that you could find this. Because remember when I talked about, remember back in Cairo in 1924, they were having problem in the high schools. And so they went to a guy named Muhammad Ibn al-Husayni al-Haddad. That He was there, a scholar at Al-Azhar University there in Cairo. And they asked him, because of all these 30 different Qurans, can you choose one of them that could be the official Quran so that we can only mandate that as the Quran that all the students need to use so that we'll get we'll be able to have standardized tests? That was the problem. They wanted to get standardized testing in the Quranic subjects. So he chose this one right here. Why did he choose this one? What a stupid choice. This is the worst one he could have chosen. <laughs> this does not come from Mecca. This does not come from Medina. This comes from Kufa. It comes from a guy named Hafs who died in 796. Muhammad died in 632. That's 144 years later. This is one of the Qurans that was burned by Uthman. Remember that in 652? Remember what I said about half an hour ago? <laughs> so why in the world would he have chosen this? He chose it because the Ottomans had chosen this. And the reason the Ottomans wanted it is because it was very close to where they lived. And also, it's a very simple Quran. It's one of the most simple. But every, if you read the story about Hafs, uh, uh, he was a liar. He was he made up his isnads. Uh, he was never chosen by people, his own peers. They didn't want anything to do with him. And yet, here you have Muhammad Ibn al-Husayni al-Haddad choosing this as the standard text. So they they chose us in 1924 there in Cairo, just for the city of Cairo. They took all the other remaining 29 Qurans from all over Cairo, from all the high schools, took them out into a boat and dumped them into the Nile. Now, have you heard this before? I heard that one, yeah. Why would you dump them into the Nile? Of course, so that no one else would do any of the... Because the, the other ones, I, I guess, are corrupted, right? Well, they thought as much. <laughs> okay, so they must assume that they were, they were all corrupted. Only this one was the authentic one. No, the reason they dumped it is because they didn't want anybody, any of the students, coming up with any other answers. It was expediency. <laughs> now, stop and think. Are you permitted to dump Qurans in the Nile today? Are you permitted to burn Qurans in the Nile today? Are you permitted to tear them up and put them in your mouth and spit them out? No, you would be killed if you did that. And yet that's exactly what they did 94 years ago. 96 years ago, excuse me. And no one seems to complain about it until I bring it up. And Yasser Qadi goes and starts laughing and laughing and laughing and making a big fool of himself, thinking that this was all fiction. But that's what happened in 1994, 1924. By 1936, it was such a successful model for the schools in Cairo that they decided to make this Egypt-wide. So all the schools in Egypt then started using Hufs. By 1985, in Saudi Arabia... King Fahd, who was the king at that time in 1985, realized what a great project this was in Egypt, realized that they had this problem all over the Muslim world, and so he decided to take this book and make it standard for the entire world. That's only 35 years ago. This book is only 35 years old as far as the, can the canon of the Quran, and I don't know how old you guys are, but that makes me older than the Quran. But can you see the difficulty? If that's only 35 years ago that this has been made standard for the entire world, what about the other 29? So here comes Huff's Hatun back with these five or six. And she says, well, I'm going to see if I can find more. So she sent students, anybody that was going to Yemen or Jordan or down to Morocco or any of these cities. She says, go into the bookstores and find. And she had this list right here. Now, this list is up on Wikipedia. You can get it. I didn't make this list. This is the list of the first seven. Here are the three that were added later. Here are the students of the first seven. And here are the students of the three. So the first 10, this is what Yasef Qadi called the creme de la creme. 
Okay, he called these 10 the creme de la creme. And that includes Nafi, Ibn Kathir, Abu Amr, Ibn Amir, Asim, Hamzak, Al-Kasai, Abu Jafar, Jakub, and Khalaf. Those are supposedly the 10 that Muhammad first received. But Hafs and Warsh are not in here. And Hafs and Warsh are the two most popular today. They're over here in these two columns. There is Warsh up there, and here is Hafs here. Warsh was chosen not because of popularity. He was chosen because he came from Cairo. They needed somebody from Cairo. They didn't even look at his book to see whether, whether or not it even agreed with Nafi. So he did not come from uh, Medina at all. He came from Cairo, and that's why it was chosen, and that's why it's become very popular in North Africa. So by the time that um, King Fahd chose this, people were questioning, and I was questioning, why in the world would he choose this one? Why didn't he choose one of those from Mecca Medina? Because if these are from Mecca Medina, then these would be the Qureshi dialect. Am I correct? This would be the dialect that Uthman demanded, decided was the original dialect, the dialect that Muhammad would have spoken, and the dialect that should therefore be in heaven. But that's not the one that was chosen. He chose one way down here that comes from Kufa. Ooh, doo, 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 doo. Can you then understand that by 1985, when they made this the official text, this is a real problem. Because then by 2004, 2016, my good friend Hatun Tosh had now collected 26 of these. 26 different Qurans. And she said, let's take these down to the corner. Now, at that time, I said, listen, Hatun, this is, who cares about this? This is nothing more. I said much the same thing you did, Dan. Uh, showing my ignorance at that time. Nothing against you, Dan. You don't. You're not into this whole world. So don't. I love it when you make these kind of statements. I can throw it right back in your face because it's been <laughs> thrown back in my face for now 25 years. So I said to Hatu, "Why in the world should we take these down? This. Listen. We know that the dots and the vowels were added at a later date. This is nothing more than where you put the dots and where you put the vowels. That's man-made. Uh, that's that's those. Those are all man-made. And she kind of looked at me. And says, "Jay, would you stop talking like an American? Stop talking like an academic? And start." thinking start thinking like a muslim every muslim every muslim whether they are radical whether they are nominal maybe not the liberals but the radical and the nominals that's 99.9 percent .9 of all muslims have always been told there's one quran hmm. there's not one word not one letter has changed because if one word any letter has changed that means man has changed the quran and if man can change the quran that means chapter 50 verse 9 you might as well throw it out of the Quran because God has no longer protected it. You might as well throw out chapter 10, verse 15. You might as well throw out chapter 18, verse 27, because that means the Quran can be changed by humans. And you might as well throw chapter 85, verse 22 out of the Quran because that means it is no longer eternal. If it is eternal, in order for it to retain its eternality, in order to it's for it to retain its inimitability, no man can change one word. No man can change one letter. Hmm. Can you see what you're saying, Jay? And she says, can you see what I'm saying, Jay? And I kind of looked at her and I said, wow, I see what you're saying. She says, if all we need to do is like just hold up two different Qurans and show two words that are different and we have destroyed the Quran. In the eyes of every Muslim and eyes of 99.9% .9 of Muslim. You've got to start thinking like a Muslim, she said. Someone just put that up there. Yeah. And see, that was my problem. I was thinking as an academic. I like Dan Brubaker's material. This is much more damaging as far as I'm concerned. This is much more damaging. But this is academia. This is only about 1% of all Muslims will even understand this argument. 99.9% .9 of all Muslims will understand this argument. And that's why we held them up in June of 2016. Now, when we held them up, there was a huge backlash. You can go up on Fander Films, go up on my YouTube site, and just take a look at what happened. The Muslims start throwing things at us. And in the crowd that day was Muhammad Hijab. Muhammad Hijab, he stands about six foot eight. 
I was on the ladder and he was right next to me, filming me, yelling at me. And he has been a thorn in our side for many years. And there he was right there. When he stands on the ground, his head's next to mine. That's how tall he is. But he was, you could see his head was shaking. You can see it's all in the film there. And he steps away from the crowd and he starts saying, all the Muslims, come here, come here. Don't, don't look at what they're showing you. Don't listen to what they're saying. He was having a problem. You could see he was going through a crisis of faith. That was in 2000. Look on the film. You can see it. Come here. Come here. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Don't watch them. Since when don't you listen or watch what's happening at Speaker's Corner? What do you think Speaker's Corner is about? Yeah. yeah. You don't sit there and run away from the argument. You tackled the argument. Do you not? They should. You, they, should have, they should have taken us on, head on. So he pulls them away, and that happened in 2016. He went through a crisis of faith at that time. Now let's segue to 2020. June 8th, Muhammad Hijab now is probably one of the biggest bloggers on YouTube. He has a following of nearly 400,000 subscribers. That's huge. That's big uh, in these kind of terms, because this is nothing to do with entertainment. This is to do with serious theology. And he comes to Yasser Qadi. Dr. Yasser Qadi, considered by most to be the probably the premier scholar in the United States today on Islam. Uh, uh, I don't know of anybody that is as popular as he is on the internet. Um, he is has his PhD from Yale University. Uh, got it in on this material. This is what he studied. He studied, actually he studied, um, I can't remember the guy's name now from the from the 1300s. He actually, he, did, he, he didn't study the Kidat, but while he was there at Yale University, he came across the Kidat. And he um, got his PhD from Yale University in 1995. So about the same time I was doing my debate with Jamal Badawi, he was getting his doctorate 25 years ago. So he would be the best scholar to ask this question because this is what he does. Look at his YouTube site. He has almost 400,000 subscribers. And every day he puts out understanding. How do you understand this? How do you understand that? He takes question after question and he answers it. That's his job. That's why he's best known. And he is the, the voice of Islam in the English language, which means for more Muslims all over the world, they go to Yasad Qari than anybody else. Because remember, only 15% of all Muslims study Arabic or even know read or write Arabic. And remember, all the best questions are coming in the West. There, none of these kind of questions are coming up in the Arab-speaking world. So here comes Muhammad Hijab. He's here. He represents the East. Yasir Qadi represents the West. Two completely different genres. Are you following this? Yasir Qadi, and Yasir Qadi in the West represents academia. Muhammad Hijab represents, and I would say Yasir Qadi only represents maybe 1% of the Muslim world really follow, understands him. They all follow him. They love what he's saying, but really understands him and understands that type of academia only about 1%. 99% would follow Muhammad Hijab and understand him. Because why? Well, he is the robust, radical, orthodox Islam that the, almost the entire world represents. So you have two different worlds in the same interview. And the East is asking the West a very important question. And he is asking the question that he saw back in 2016. What are we going to do with these different kid'ats? What are we going to do? He didn't even get the word out before Muhammad, before Yasakari shut him down. And if you look at the interview, he said, do not ask me this question. We don't talk about this in public. No, we don't talk about this in public. And do not put it on film. And Muhammad Hijab says, listen, I'm going to put my hand out here and I'm going to show you a musaf. Musaf means a book, a blank book, a blank piece of paper. What are you going to write on it? 
which one of these Qurans are you going to write on? Which one of these Qira'ats? Which one of these Akrufs? Qira means reading. Which one of these readings? Now, he could even get out that out before Yasser Qadi shut him down again. And he, you could see, just look at Yasser Qadi's body language. He would, did not want to answer this question. Muhammad Hijab said, this should be an easy yes or no answer. Is it the Hafs? Is it the Kaloon? Is it the Warsh? Which one of these is the one that's in heaven? Which one of these is, a, is the eternal Quran? Which one of these was revealed to Muhammad between 610 and 632? Which one was finally written down by Uthman in 652? That's what he was asking. Now, that should be a pretty simple answer. You just, you just choose one. Choose one of the 30. Why didn't he choose this one? Why didn't he choose this one? Which is the one that Muhammad ibn al-Husayni al-Haddad chose, which is one that King Fahd chose in 1985. Why did he choose this one? Because Yasser Qadi is an academic. He's over here. He lives in both worlds. And he had this crisis back 25 years ago in 1995 when he went to Yale University. He came across this question at Yale University. Muhammad Hijab had heard about that. And he says, oh, is this your crisis of faith that you had? He says, no, 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 no. I did not have a crisis of faith. I had a crisis of knowledge. Ooh, dear. And I'm sitting there going like this. I'm just clapping <laughs> as I'm listening to this. I'm sitting, finally, we're getting an honest Muslim. Finally, we're getting a Muslim that has Shane saying to the world what he has always known. And he went, started going into a mantra. He started going to my, I am absolutely sure that the Quran is the word of God. I am absolutely sure that the Quran has been preserved. I am absolutely sure that the that the, the number of names that are on each one of these is absolutely re relevant. I am absolutely sure that God can preserve his word. This is what I call the Islamic dance. This is what you were doing, Dan, just a few, a few minutes ago. <laughs> Islamic dance. They always dance. They get into this mantra and they just keep on saying this memorized text that they have been told since they were knee-high to a grasshopper. Muslims do it all the time and they especially do it there in England mm. when they do not want to be, be bothered by by facts they get into this what they know is correct what they have been told and that's exactly what Yasakadi was doing there on film this Islamic dance and you can see Muhammad Hijab was not satisfied with that he was not satisfied and then so Yasar Qadi says, take my class, take my class and then he gave three different distinctions of what they do with Muslims those who are brand new converts to Islam. We don't even talk about this. We don't bring this up. You don't talk about it. Those who have been there, a, Christ, a Muslim for a little longer, then you say, just believe. And we put a red line here. We have a respect for the Quran. Don't go beyond that red line. Now, Dan, Phil, do we have a red line in Christianity for anything? I can't think of one. I know that some denominations might have a red line, but... Um, uh, I don't think but do you, Phil or Dan, are there any questions that you say may, you cannot ask? No, no I think that's. Have you? Yeah. All, all the people that have you brought on your show, are there certain things you say? Do not ask me this. Well, this person didn't tell me that. Not, not yeah, about, yeah. but not to do with Christianity. No, no, yeah. no. There's not one question. I don't know of any red lines anywhere. That's the beauty of Christianity. That's the why is it Wellhausen could ask these questions of the Bible. Why is it that the school of Dubigin there in G Germany actually introduced historical criticism? They didn't invent it, but they basically, it's historical criticism, source criticism, redacted criticism, historical criticism, textual criticism has not been birthed on the Bible, but has been pretty much matured on this book. 
it is this book that gives us the textual critical analysis that we have today. We would not know what to do with textual criticism had we not been first applied to the Bible. And that's the beauty of the Bible. There is not one question that you cannot ask of it. And every question has been asked of it. And that's why this book has gone through more testing, has gone through more critical analysis than any other one book in history. And this book has passed every test. So when you're talking about the, the well, obviously in the, the West, we have a different sort of, um, you know, intellectual tradition and stuff, you know, uh, and, you know, the Renaissance and Enlightenment, um, you know, uh, cultural changes led to us, the, the development sort of literary criticism of, of the Bible. Now, obviously, the, the, the East has not necessarily had the same, the same tradition. And so, you know, is it, is it, I'm not saying is it fair because I, I'm just I'm just interested in the sense that you know we're we're crit criticizing the the Quran through our sort of West Western eyes, whereas actually they, in the East they haven't they just haven't got there yet, but maybe they will do at, at some point. So you know we're 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 posing questions that don't they haven't necessarily culturally started asking it because I don't know exactly. I agree with you a hundred. Yes, and that's exactly what Yasser Kandi said. Because remember what he said next. Here in the West, they have come leaps and bounds better in just the last hundred years. Did you remember him saying that? They have moved much further ahead than you in the East. And you in the East, your narrative has holes in it. That narrative has hold is about the people in the East. The very thing you're talking about. You can no longer deal with the questions I'm dealing with. I live in a different world than you do, Muhammad Hijab, he was saying. Mm. I have to live in Houston, Texas. I have to live with, with this textual criticism that's now being shoved down my throat. I had to deal with it 25 years ago, and 25 years I have not come to an answer. And then he said, this is a problem that the Muslims have had for a thousand years. And this has been the most difficult question in a thousand years. So, Dan, getting back to your question, this is a question that has not just come to the West, to the East recently. They've had this question for a thousand years and haven't been able to answer it. How much more time are you going to give them? Hmm. So don't say it's not fair. I would say they've been way ahead of us on this question. Why is it that we have been able to answer the question? Because the Bible is the only text that can answer this question. Remember when they thought that there was no somebody, anybody named Abraham, that we couldn't have understand any, there could be nobody named Abraham because there's no reference to him and that Moses could not have written because writing was not that early in 1400 BC. Well, that's before they found the Ebla tablets and the Nuzi tablets and the Amarna and the Amarna tablets and the Mari tablets and the Mari and the Nuzi tablets that came from the same area that Abraham came from, from the Euphrates Valley that were written from, uh, uh, from uh, uh, 2000 BC up until 1600 BC. So they covered the same area era that Abraham lived and here they find out from these Nuzi and Mari tablets that all the customs that we find in the Genesis account about Abraham are found in those tablets but those customs went out of date by 1600 so how can, so how can Moses living in 1400 have known about those customs he never went to the Euphrates Valley he never lived in Mesopotamia and yet he got every one of the questions though those customs correct the right man at the right place doing the right thing at the right time. So that's why the same questions, if we have been able to answer them for the Bible, we need to ask the same questions of the Quran. Because Muhammad is a man in history. He did live at a certain time. Supposedly he was born in 570 and died in 632. That means he lived in a certain place called Mecca. This, these are historical statements. If these are historical statements, then he, can, he has to pass the same test that Jesus passed. He has to pass the same test that Abraham passed. He has to pass the same test that all of the prophets of the Bible have passed. 
Why is it that the, the prophets of the Bible have passed every of these tests, and yet we can't find anybody? And I now we've now got an hour and a half, and you still haven't told me about one reference to Muhammad in the seventh century. That, that's no, 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 I don't have one. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have one. So I, I guess. Oh, sorry. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in yeah. just a little bit of a practical element. Then I guess. So we're saying that. 99% Muslims don't hear this stuff. We've got there's some element of scholarship in the sense of Yasser Qadi. I've mentioned Yasser Qadi in the whole narrative on a online chat very briefly, and it was sort of laughed out. We don't consider Yasser Qadi a scholar, and then someone else was just like, so you just get sort of brushed off. If if I'm communicating, okay, so stop dude, right there, Phil. Oh yeah. Since when? Since when have they said they don't consider Yasser Qadi a scholar? Well, since since this <laughs> since, since June eighth, yeah. Do you then understand why he had this meltdown on November twenty sixth? Yeah, well, that was he interesting. Had lost yeah. all credibility because of that twenty five minute interview, and yet that twenty five minute interview is probably one of the most honest interviews I've seen. Mm -hmm. When yeah. you Muslims finally are honest about the problems, remember he went on to say that the rest of the world is looking at us as the emperor with no clothes. What an admission! What an admission! So I want somebody, anybody that's saying they don't trust Yasser Qadi as a scholar, I want them to answer this question. Where and why is it you can have 30, 30 different Qurans? I only have nine of them here that are all in heaven at the same time. And remember, no Muslim has looked at the differences. No one has cracked a book to look and see what the differences are. We have a team in London that has now looked at 23 of these Qurans, and they have found 93,000 differences. Right. Why has no Muslim been able to say what I've just said? And that's all been found in the last five years. Why is it we're doing this work and they're not? Mm -hmm. So you, if you don't like Yasser Qadi because of what he said in that interview, then who are you going to put forward? Why don't they put forward Dr. Shadi Nasser out of Harvard University? Why don't they put forward his material? Why don't they put forward what he is finding? He is now teaching at Cambridge University there in England. Mm -hmm. He is considered to be the world scholar on the Kitab. This is his material. Sorry, not these books. He is the one that is exposing all, all the stuff I'm using comes from him. Mm -hmm. Why don't they put him forward as, an, as a scholar? I'd like to see if any of them can confront what Dr. Yosakat, sorry, Dr. Shadi Nasser is coming up with. And his book just came out three three weeks ago. And his book is just, the, the second of his books is just now on Ibn Mujahid and the problems with Ibn Mujahid. So these things, you know, Muslims can say this and you can sit there and listen to them, but sooner or later they're going to have to answer the question that Yosakati could not answer. Because at the end of 25 minutes, at the end of 25 minutes, when Muhammad Hijab put his hand out a second time and said, I'm still waiting for you to tell me which one is on this, which one you're going to write here. What did he say? Do you remember his answer? For those of you who saw it, what was remember. his final response? I can't remember. If it, uh, it's not that simple or something like that, wasn't it? It's, uh, no, that's what he said at the very beginning. Yeah. I can't remember. He said, they're all the Quran. All oh, right, he went to that. This, oh, okay. A little bit of that. You grab a little <laughs> bit of here. You take some huffs. You take some kaloon. You take some water, and you just mix them around, and that's the Quran. Oh, I just started going like this when I saw that. All ninety-three thousand differences are the Quran. Goodness. That was a. He pretty much just gave up. He had no answer. Yeah. And if that's the answer, can you then understand? It's now a thousand years later, and they still haven't answered it mm. because you can't answer it. There is no answer for that. They're so all different. They're all in Arabic. They are all late. Not one of them's from the seventh century. Not one of them's from the Quran from Muhammad because they do not have the original Quran. 
all they would need is to show us the original Quran and we can do a comparison. There is no manuscript from the time of Muhammad. There is no manuscript from the time of Uthman. There is nothing to compare these with. Hmm. Therefore, they have to go to these. And that's why, can you then understand, this is the, this basically, this is the red line they cannot go beyond. The red line they cannot go beyond because it's a catch-22 for them. How can they even admit? How can they even answer that question? Because there's no way they know that they're now living in the West. And in the West, we have something called textual criticism. We've done this with the Bible. That Why do you think we know where all the verses are? Why do you think we know where these 44 verses that aren't probably shouldn't be there in, cha in Mark chapter 16, verse 9 to 20? What about uh, John chapter 7, verse 53 to John 8, 8, 11, the woman caught in adultery? Why is it we even put a line before and after warning the reader that these verses are not found in the earliest Greek manuscripts? Because we have the Greek manuscripts. Because we've opened them, because we've read the text, because we've compared them with 24,000 manuscripts, not just six manuscripts, 24,000 manuscripts. We're so far ahead of the rest of the world. That's why I love my Bible. <laughs> my Bible has no red lines. Yeah. You can ask any question. And for 200 years, we've been asking this question. Why is it we can go to battle for the Bible? Because the Bible stands by itself. It stands heads and shoulders above any other piece of literature. There's no other piece of literature that's gone through the test our Bible has because we refuse to have red lines. So getting back to Dan's category, is it not fair? It is absolutely fair to ask these questions because they've been asked of our Bible. And we are the only ones that can ask these questions, Dan, because we stand on a text that has gone through every criticism. Therefore, we have the only privilege. We are the only ones privileged to ask this question. Secondly, and this is even more important, we are the only ones privileged to ask this question because we have already gone through the test and come out on the other side. We are the only ones, therefore, that have the antidote. So that's we are what I mean. We the only I mean, ones that have the alternative. We are the only ones that can give them something better than the Quran. So, that's so, we've, so we've been through that process, you know, post-enlightenment, post uh, you know, dealing with liter literary criticism. And a lot of Christians have, have, in some sense, changed their view of Scripture slightly, in, in, at least in places in light of that. Um so um, is it not plausible that, that Muslims, upon finding out this information, that you know, might, might interpret, um, you know, the verses in the Quran that talks about the, Quran, the human being not being able to change uh, uh, the Quran and, and it being uh, eternal? Is there, is there a plausible way that, that a Muslim perhaps um, could, could approach um, the, the, that verse or verses in the Quran in a way that would... Um, that would make it that make the Quran salvageable in in a way. Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm hoping they are, and I would wish the 99% of Muslims who do live over here start coming over to the West and starts falling and say, realizing that this is a book written by men. This has nothing to do with heaven. This has nothing to do with Muhammad. This has nothing to do with Uthman. It really started to get put together probably in the eighth century, and the reason it was put together is because they needed a book that was bigger and better than the other books. But then if that is the case, then can you under now understand why this is so ultapulta? Take a look at its content. Not one, not one story is complete. Well, there's only one complete story in the entire Quran. That's in chapter 12 of the story of Joseph. Stories don't begin. Stories don't end. They are borrowed from many different sources. We pretty much can source 70% of the Quran back to new uh, uh, Jewish apocryphal writings and, and uh, Christian sectarian writings. Hmm. They got the wrong material. They borrowed the wrong sources. And the reason why is because those are the only sources where they were 
available to them where they were living up in Stesiphon, which is now Baghdad and in Kufa and in parts of Basra and Damascus, not in Mecca, not in Medina. These are the only thing. This is what John Wansborough came out with back in the 1970s when he wrote Sectarian Milieu and, the, and, and a Quranic Studies and got a death threat for writing these two books. And he was head of department at School of Oriental African Studies. Dr. John Wansborough said, you can't have a Quran that early in that place because nobody spoke these languages. No one was living down in Mecca. They, these stories were all being festered and coming, or were being debated way up in Kufa, which is 100 miles away and way much, much, much later. And this only came into existence because of the fact that the Arabs up there, the Lachmids and those were having contact with the Jews and the Christians. And they were then giving them all these apocryphal accounts because they didn't want to give them the real accounts because those they protected. Uh, then, and the reason why they didn't understand that is because the, the real account, the real Bible, the Old and New Testament, had not yet been translated into Arabic. That was only done in the late 8th century. They mm -hmm. got the wrong story. See, all this fits together. It all fits together if you follow it on a timeline and you follow it in what was happening politically. And that's why I want to hear Muslims say that. And then I want to hear Muslims say that this is not from Muhammad. It is not from God. It is nothing more than a book that was put together as an attack against Christianity, attack against us, an attack against our Lord, attack against the Jews. And that's why the Quran is so polemical. Mm -hmm. And that's why it is so full of violence. Now I can understand why it says, slay the unbeliever wherever ye find them, besiege them, lay in wait with them every kind of ambush. This is a book of war, primarily against the pagans and then secondarily against the Jews and the Christians. Now can you understand why chapter 5, verse 51 says, have nothing to do with the Christians, for they are friends of one another, and he who is one of them is one of them. He who is friends of one of them is one of them. Why now you come, you have Surah 9, Ayah 29, which says, make war on the people of the book. That's us, until we pay the jizya tax. That's a political statement. That's what was happening in the ninth, in this 8th century. That wasn't happening in the 7th century, because there were no Jews living in Mecca, Medina at all. And that we get from this book right here. If you look at what Hotting uh, has found, and he's done all the earliest literature. He was, he's very clear that there are no Jews living that far south. Not that early. They were all living much, much further north. Now can you understand why all the Kidats, almost all the Kidats come from the north? Can you understand where all the Kiblas are facing north? Can you understand now why all the do documents are coming from the north? Can you understand now why all the inscriptions are from much further north? Can you all understand why all the coins are much further north? And they're all either Christian in the west or, or Jorash in the east. It all fits together politically when you look at it on a timeline. So when you have any notion about Muhammad living in a place called Mecca, that was only introduced in the ninth century. And the reason why they chose Mecca and not Petra, because Petra was the original sanctuary, look at all the five stages of the Hajj that are there in Mecca today. Take a look at them, and they are all nothing more than reproductions of what already existed in Petra. Those five stages are all found in Petra, but they all fit the Islamic tradition uh, references to them and even the denominations, no, sorry, the dimensions that they're talking about. Look at the dimensions of the Kaaba written by Azraki in the ninth century. Look at the, the, the dimensions of the Kaaba. That does not fit Mecca. They all fit the Kaaba that's in Petra. Look at the two towers, the two mountains that Hagar was supposed to have run back and forth, Safa and Marwa, that are there in Mecca today, right outside the Kaaba. Look at those two towers, those two mountains. They're not mountains, they're just rocks, 15 feet high. That's not a mountain. A 15-foot rock is not a mountain. Go to Petra, and you will find the two mountains there, Safa and Marwa. Those are mountains. On top of them are old ruins of churches, proving that they are ancient, archaic. 
So everything we're looking for in Mecca is previously in Petra. Now can you understand how all the mosques are facing Petra, all the way from Guangzhou in China, Sherman in India, in Syria, in Dem way up in Turkey. They're all facing Petra up until 706. They only get introduced to Mecca because Mecca then was finally chosen by the Abbasids. And the reason why Mecca was chosen was because Ibn Zubair, who was the governor of Petra, rebelled against Abdul Malik, his, his caliph, in, eight, in 730, uh, 786, 785, 786, destroyed Petra and took the Black Stone with him. Why hasn't anybody talked about the Black Stone? Took the Black Stone with him. The Black Stone, if you do any historical study of the Black Stone, the Black Stone is always where God's presence is. And when you take the Black Stone with you, you take God's presence with you. And he fled down to the south. He fled down to his home place, which is from Yathrib, from the Medina. And that's why he needed allies. He asked for the Abbasids to be his allies because they were the other power that was growing and growing at that time. And so they were the ones that were conflicting with the Umayyads. And they then gave him their power, their patronage. And when he took the Black Stone to Mecca, all the pilgrims started going to Mecca. Why? Because the Black Stone was there. This has nothing to do with theology. It has everything to do with history. It has everything to do with politics. And then you can see then why all the other Qiblas are facing other directions, not thousands of directions like Dr. Uh, what's his name? David. Um, I can't think of his name right now. <laughs> David King, Dr. David King, who just vilified G Gibson. So Gibson doesn't know what he's talking about. No, King didn't know what he was talking about because they thought there were hundreds of different directions. No, there's only four directions. And every one of those four directions are political. They all have to do with politics, which is exactly what happens when you have two empires and you're looking and seeing where you're going to put your mosque. You're going to wait to see who's going to win out before you actually put your mosque in that direction. So it just follows what was happening on the ground. And every historian needs to do that. You need to go back to the evidence on the ground from that time period, from that place, and then interpret what you're watching, what you're looking at. And that's what Gibson did. That's all he did. And he was the only one to go to every one of those mosques, to physically go to those mosques, and then do a, use a GPS to look at the coordinates of every one of those Qiblas. David King, who is his greatest, who is supposed to be the world authority on the Qibla, who absolutely vilified him in this paper that he wrote in 2018, that. two years ago, he only went to one mosque. How can you be the world authority on the Kibla and you only go to one mosque? And everything he looked at was from 9th, 10th, and 11th century. You cannot take 9th, 10th, and 11th century people and say who are themselves confused. Did not They admitted they didn't know why these Kiblas were all over the place. Hmm. Well, if they already admit they don't know, then why are you using them as authorities? You need to go to the 7th century. You need to go to those exact kibbles, and in there, for you need to see what was on the ground. Gibson was the only one that did that, and he went to over a hundred mosques. God bless Gibson. What a man! Of <laughs> and yet this guy has no degree. He has he has not gone to any institution. He just lived for twenty five years on the ground in situ, learning the language, living amongst the Bedouins, and walking and walking from place to place to place, and using the modern technology to find the coordinates. So, so did the early Christians that sort of and raise any of these issues around around Muhammad and Because I know about about, about John John of Damascus, um, but but, were there, but did early Christians ever sort of pick up on these on these issues yeah. around? Who none is of the Muhammad early Christians Muhammad. knew Muhammad. Remember, his name's not there. The earliest Christians are John Damascus, but by he he is he lives up until seven forty nine. So you're already in the eighth century. By that time, Muhammad was was beginning being formed, and that's why he's saying. He's actually questioning, how is it you're still putting together? He's referring to 
he's referring to the surah of the camel. What surah of the camel? There is no surah of the camel in the Quran. Mm -hmm. He's referring to a completely different Quran. So is John the earliest person to mention Muhammad, early Christian, the early, the earliest? We Christian have the writings of Sabaeus. Writings of Sabaeus do mention a guy named Muhammad, and that's 660. So who is the Muhammad he's talking about? Well, take a look at what he says. Just unpack it. He says that this Muhammad was there raping women and killing children, uh, killing people up there in Jerusalem, and he was a prophet. Well, what Muhammad is that referring? That's Ilyas ibn Kabisa. Ilyas ibn Kabisa is a Lakhmid king. He did live in Hira, which is Kufa today. He did live. He was a Lakhmid. He did live very close to Baghdad, up in Iraq. He was given. He was a. He was a uh, understudy of Kusrao, so therefore he was given thirty villages by Kusrao, the Sassanid emperor, in six eighteen by six twenty two. When, the, when Heraclius came and destroyed the Sassanians, he then destroyed the power of the Sassanians over to, uh, 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 that had, been, had subjugated the Lakhmids, which freed up Ilyas ibn Kabisa. Now, Ilyas ibn Kabisa's name was Muhammad. That was his name to get. Everybody knew him as Muhammad. So that name exists. So is it possible but he was a he Christian? Was... Oh, he was okay. never a Muslim. He was a Christian, always has been a Christian. He then turned coats joined in the Arabs, the other Lachmids, and then started fighting the Byzantines. And that's why he did go up to Jerusalem. And yes, we have no problem believing. So when you have Sabaeus talking about this Muhammad, he's referring to that man. Because there is a Muhammad in the 7th century, but it's not the Muhammad of the 9th century. That's Iyas ibn Kabisa al-Tayaye. He's from, from, from Tayaye, which is a Lachmid organization. So could that first Muhammad not be the source? But is that what, has anyone posited him as a, well, as we, a we, I don't, I, to be, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this in December 2020. Ask me in a year and I'll probably change my mind because there's so much new material coming down the pike. He, he was only discovered in July of this year. I'm not discovered. Um, good old Hoyland was talking about him. When was this written, by the way? I mean, Hoyland is so far ahead of the world because he did his work on this. This is 1997. So in the last century, Hoyland knew about him, but nobody bared dare to say what we know about him because Hoyland didn't put two and two together because Hoyland was still assuming that these were called Muslims. You know, even Hoyland contradicts himself in his own book. He says no one referred to anybody called Muslims, but whenever he refers to these Arabs, he calls them Muslims. Was he being politically correct? Who knows? I'd love to ask Hoyland why he used the word Muslim, because there's no reference to any people called Muslim. But what he does do, he does talk about Ias ibn Kabisa, and he does talk about him, and he does suggest that maybe these are the ones that Sabaeus is referring to, because that would make sense. You would use his nickname, the one just like my name is Jay. That's how you know, but that's not my real name. So, what, so when are the followers of of Muhammad again, um, whether we were mean by that, first referred to as Muslims. Not till 730, so that's 8th century, about the time that John Damascus is writing about them. Okay. So what were they, so what were they, what they could, you know, if we got, uh, what's the Battle of Torres, what's 732? So what were, what were the people? Um, they would have been called Muslims by that time. And most people believe that this was probably introduced by Abdul Malik in 690. So about the 690s is where Muslim was starting to be introduced as these people. We don't know. There's not. We can't find any reference. And that's still yet to be discovered because we haven't really taken and done a study yet on where the timeline is. Now, what do I say? When I say we, it's not me. I'm not doing any of this study. I'm nothing more than a communicator of it. What we're, I have about 20 young men and women who are all over the world. They're in India, they're in the Middle East, they're down in Australia, they're down in France. One or two here in the United States. And they're doing this study, and they've been doing this study for about 20, 25 years. Some of them as much as 30 years they've been doing these studies. The problem is that they had never really understood what they were studying. They just were assuming that the Islamic traditions were correct. 
Let me just give you an example of one guy who has gone public. His name is Olaf Lafontaine uh, from France. And he has a group around him who've been looking at the coins. And they're way ahead of the rest of the world on the coins. They're, they're, which you, if you're a study of coins, you're a numismatist. So he ha was looking at the coins and he had the coins. In fact, he even owned some of the coins. And yet he, when he was looking, he was trying to impose the 9th and 10th century traditions and was just not making sense. So he started seeing my videos that I started putting out a year ago in uh, January of 2020, where I started looking at the coins and started reading all these different articles by these numismatists here. These guys. I've got a whole pile of their articles here. Uh, and the, he start, I've got the same articles that he's got. And I, as I was reading these articles, I started to realize, hold on, these guys and gals, they're coming up with complete. They're trying to impose everything they see on these coins. They're trying to impose the ninth and tenth century narrative on them, and they're making all kinds of errors. And so I said to uh, Olaf, "Why don't you?" I mean, and he said, "I didn't say this to him." He, I said this on the video. I said, "For those of you who are doing this, forget about the ninth and tenth century. Why don't you just look at the coins and tell me what you see on the coins?" And that's what they were doing. Hmm. Once you start looking at the artifacts, once you start looking at the inscriptions, once you start looking at the buildings, once you start looking at the kiblas. Once you start doing that and say, forget about the ninth intensity, what are we finding? You come across an entirely different narrative. And then you realize that there is something significant that happened in 622, but it had nothing to do with a man named Muhammad that went to between two cities called Mecca and Medina. It was the overthrow and the destruction of the Sassanids by Heraclius, which freed up the Arabs so they can now have their own identity. Once they had their own identity, and you have men like uh Ilyas Ibn Kabisa, who became the arbiter between the Christians and the Jews up there in Hira, he was seen as an arbiter, therefore he was highly respected, but he was a very violent man. But he did not, he did not ever claim to be a prophet. He never claimed to have a book called the Quran, and he never claimed to be a Muslim. He was a Christian. And then once he has, once he had done his job, then what did he do? Well, he went off to the west to Petra. Why Petra? Because that was the place of their sanctuary. That's where the, all the Nabataeans come from. That's where all the Nabataeans had their king, their tombs and temples. It was the seat of the Nabataean kingdom for hundreds of years. It is also where the back black stone resided up until 687. Petra is where all the mosques are facing. Now can you start putting it all together? And that's why I'm saying if you're looking at these artifacts, forget for heaven's sakes, make sure that the narrative you're coming up with is a narrative that fits the 7th century. Not the ninth and tenth century, because the ninth and tenth century, none of it fits. You got the wrong man at the wrong place doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. We can't even find any place called Mecca. If you can't find Mecca until 741, and the Mecca that you see there, found by Patricia Corona on the Continuum Byzantine Arabica, which is written in 741, if she just read the entire the entire the entire inscription on that uh, on that document, she would realize that that Mecca is just south of Edessa, between Edessa and Haran. That's way up in southern Turkey. That is not the Mecca we see today. That's thousands of miles away. But it was called Mecca, the word itself, the name itself. But that's not the sanctuary. The sanctuary looked like it was Petra. And Petra was up in the west, up in what is today. So, what, so what is the earliest um, source we have making reference to what we would understand today is Mecca? We haven't figured that one out yet. I would say, I would say the the probably the mecca that we have today, the earliest source. We probably will never be able to answer that. Let me tell you why. If it is now, let's let's just back up. What do the Islamic traditions tell us about Mecca? Well, first of all, it's where Adam and Eve were sent to, thrown down to when they were thrown down from Garden of Eden in chapter seven, verse twenty-four in the Quran. Right. So they were up in the Garden of Eden, which is up in space. They're thrown down to Mecca. Well, at least Eve is thrown down to Mecca. 
Adam is thrown down to Kerala in southern India, and then he strides up from southern, uh, he strides up from Kerala and strides up to Mecca and meets his wife there in Mecca. So, what would that tell you, Dan? It's the oldest city in history, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. So, whatever, whenever Adam and Eve lived, I don't know, but certainly a lot, long, 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 long time ago. All right. Mm -hmm. We also know in chapter twenty-one, verse fifty-one to seventy-one, that Abraham was in Mecca, although it doesn't say Mecca. And it doesn't say in chapter 7, 24, Mecca. You know, there's only one reference to Mecca in the entire Quran, and that's yeah. in chapter 48, verse 24. That's it. If it's such an important city, why doesn't why don't why is there no reference to it except one place? Are so there cities in, that are mentioned more than Mecca in the in the Quran. I'm sorry? Are there cities that are mentioned more than Mecca in the Quran? Oh, like, Mecca is mentioned, like, Jerusalem is mentioned. Jerusalem yeah, lots is, of cities are mentioned. Oh yeah. The places yeah, there's lots of cities mentioned, but not Mecca, just once. Muhammad, being as important as he is, is only mentioned four times. Now, so he they so here you have Abraham in chapter 21, verse 51 to 71, and the, it is the city of the prophets. So it's the city of the prophets, it's where the uh, mas, Masjid al Haramin means the Masjid al Haramin means the forbidden place of prayer. So, which is what we would consider the Kaaba is today. But we don't know what there's the Masjid al Haram is also in Petra. Isn't that interesting? So there is Abraham, supposedly, all Muslims believe, there in chapter 21 in Mecca. Well, that's 1900 BC, which would be pretty ancient, 1900 BC. And then we see in all the traditions that this place called Mecca, it has water, it has streams, it has clay, loam, trees, it has olive trees. It is the center of trade, north, south, east, and west. So all the claims you see about this place where this prophet came from that Muslims claim today is Mecca suggests that it's a pretty civilized place. It's an ancient place. It's been around since Adam and Eve. It's the oldest place in history. And it has had the Kaaba has always been there because when Abraham came to rebuild the Kaaba, it had already existed. All he did was to rebuild it along with Ishmael in 1900 BC. Okay, are you following all this? So someone somewhere should have known about this place, right? If it's that old, that important, center of trade. You would think, right? <laughs> well, that's why Patricia Crono became very curious when she looked at a map from the 7th century and noticed that the trade that starts way down in Ad Aden and goes up to Sana and then Nazaran goes up to Taif, then supposedly makes a jog down to Mecca, then comes back up to, these are all along the western plateau, makes a jog down to Mecca, and then it comes back up to Yathrib. That means you have to go down a thousand meters and then come back up a thousand meters to get up to Yathrib, then to go up to Tabuk, Kaibat, and then up to Gaza, the north. And she said, hold on a minute. Take, why did anybody look at that map? Why did anybody look that this is a jog down and up? Why would you get off the plateau and come back up when there's nothing there for you to go down to because there's no reference of any place there and there's not even any water? If you're going to have an oasis, you need to have water for your caravans, right? She wrote this in 1987 in her book, Meccan Trade and the Rise of Islam. And then she said, she pulled back and says, hold on, take a look at the map again. Why would you have all the trade that's coming here in the east from India and China? It comes across the Arabian Sea, and then it comes to Aden here, and then it goes up through all these places, down to Mecca, back up to Yathrib, and goes all the way up to Gaza. From Aden to Gaza, 1,250 miles by land, when you have a waterway right there on the west side of it. On the west side, you have the Red Sea. Why would you stay on board ship? It makes no sense to go on land, she said. So she reads and writes 15 languages, right? So she went back to all the trading documents from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th. Sorry, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th 
all the way up till the seventh century, reading all these documents in their original language, which no one had done before. And she couldn't find any reference to any trade that was in Western Arabia. All the trade was maritime. It all went up the Red Sea. It's the cheapest way to travel. That's why we still do it today. She found that if you take a ton of goods just 50 miles by land, you can take that same ton of goods 1,250 miles by sea for the same price. It would have been prohibitively expensive to take it over land. She said, why hadn't anybody noticed this before? So then she went to look at all the documents, the trading documents. She went to India and the western coast of India, and she looked at all the trading documents, and there's no reference to Arabia, no reference to any Arab names. The names that came up over and over again in all the documents was Eritrea, Agilis, Agilis, the capital of what is today Eritrea in Ethiopia. Well, not Ethiopia, Eritrea. It was all Africans that controlled the trade. They were seafarers. They loved going on the sea. The Arabs were desert camel herders. They didn't. That's why you don't find many ports along the Arabian Peninsula. She said, why hadn't anybody looked at this before? Now, that's just common sense. And then she looked and she completely shut down uh, Montgomery Watt's trade route theory because it was Montgomery Watt from England who suggested that the reason that Mecca became important is because when the Sassanids were warring against the Byzantines, that shut down the trade going through the Persian Gulf. So they redirected the trade down to Aden and then went up across along the Western Plateau down to Mecca. And that's why Mecca became important. And she says, trade going through Mecca? Let's see what we know about this trade. So she went through the 15 different uh, spices that supposedly controlled this trade. And she did a chapter per spice in her book on Meccan trade. And she showed that all of the spice either came from India or Africa. Only two spices came from Arabia, and that was in Oman and Yemen, in the Hadramat at that time, which is the southern part of Arabia. And none of that went across land. The only trade that went across land was leather and milk. Now, by doing that, she just shut down the entire, the entire narrative on the trade route theory. And because of that, she got a death threat. This is the problem, Dan, when you ask, why is it Muslims aren't studying this? If a Muslim were to say what Patricia Crone said, they wouldn't live very long. Do you know of any other area of study where what you find and what you say can kill you? No, not death threats. Not we kill people for what threats, they find? Yeah. Where, did we give death threats to well Do you know of any Christians <clears throat> that have given death threats for any critical analysis of our Bible, of our Lord Jesus Christ? In Islam, if you criticize Muhammad or you criticize the Quran, it's a capital offense. Yeah. yeah. And this is being directed from Muslims today. You have the 295C law in Pakistan, which stipulates anybody that criticizes the book and the man must be killed. Since when do we do that in the West? In the 21st century or in any century? Oh, there may have been. I have to be careful because do I do know that at some time in our history, there were times when you could be killed for what you said. But not today. Not today. And not in Western not in Western uh, academia. Can you then understand, getting back to that discussion we had earlier, why Muhammad Hijab over here was coming to loggerheads with Yasser Qadi over here? Because Yasser Qadi lives in that world. He lives in our world. He lives in the Western world where academia has no red lines. And he had he went to Yale University where there are no red lines. And he suddenly came to an institution where you cannot get away by just uh, a memorized mantra that you just refer to over and over again. Can you then understand why they then, after two weeks of putting up that interview, they had to stop all comments on, the, uh, on both their sites from that interview? Because there was Muslim, hundreds of Muslims were yelling and screaming and hollering at Yasir Qadi and uh, 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 Muhammad Hijab. 
by two months, by August, they had to delete both the uh, from both their sites that interview. That interview you will not see on either of their sites. Mm -hmm. Why did they have to delete them? Well, Yasser Qadi said back on November 26, he said, I used the wrong choice of words. And so the authorities suggested I delete it. What a stupid admission. And here he was yelling and screaming and hollering at me and David Wood and saying that we were liars and they were inept and we knew nothing about what we were talking about and our Arabic was hopeless. And he dared to say that Daniel Brubaker's Arabic was hopeless. Can you it's see? A, that's it's a, such a sad that, video. It, it was to, to think that's an academic, that the level of discourse was totally in the gutter. It was very much, I mean, ultra Everyone's saying ultra crepidarian now. I had never. It's a heard lovely that. word. And I, I, <laughs> it's a great I, word. I, I watched that. I was told to watch it because I knew it was coming on. David Wood phoned me up. So, Dave, Dave, Jay, you need to watch this. It's coming up in, two, in about a half an hour. Uh, and this is at midnight. So, I got up and I, I was already up anyway. So, I watched the whole thing live. And as soon as I saw it, I grabbed it, made sure that I could keep it because because I knew that this would be taken down in time because it is it is such. An indictment against him and i quickly put up and you can see my response i did that response within two hours i was and i by the time i got it uploaded it was about four o'clock in the morning but i decided to go through and i just wanted to answer my material the stuff he had thrown at me because mm. the stuff he threw at me was absolutely stupid to say good. that i shouldn't use the word baghdad or should use the word cairo what word am i going to use stesifan do you think you'd understand what i'm talking if i use stesifan or mm. fustat what what you should i use fustat instead of cairo <laughs> i yeah. couldn't believe it uh, we always use the modern day word. Otherwise, no one knows what we're talking about. Mm. And to say that that whole thing about dumping the Nile, the uh, the Qurans in the Nile was fictitious, that I was making it up, and that I was talking about every Quran in the world. If he just read, the, if he'd look at the entire video and see what we were talking about, we never said the whole world. We were saying only the Qurans that were there in Cairo that belonged to high school students. What evidence so do you have for that? Hmm. I'm sorry? What evidence do you have for that? The, 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 Gabriel the, said uh, Reynolds. He wrote it in 2007. Gabriel said Reynolds. Right here. This book right here. He is head of department at Notre Dame University. It's right here. It's on page one and two. You can read it. The Quran in its historical context. Cool. And Gabriel he said Reynolds is considered to be probably one of the greatest Islamic scholars today. Uh, so he wrote this. I mean, he wrote this way back in 2008. So this has been out 12 years. Why didn't Yasakadi read this? So this is well known. This is well known. I mean, this is why you've got to keep up with. We've got to keep up with the newest material. And uh, Angelica Newark also said it. So did uh, uh, Sinai. They have. These are all well-known scholars in the Islamic world. They're all Western scholars. Not one of them is a Muslim scholar. Isn't that interesting? Muslims mm -hmm. don't want to admit this. So where did Gabriel send Well, he just he got it from the documents from the 20, uh, 1924. He went back to the original documents. Now Muslims don't want the world to know about this because, but then I, you know, if Muslims don't want to uh, want the world to know about, then I would ask him why. Well, then why was Huff's chosen? You tell me why was Huff chosen? Hmm. What was the Caucasian that, that that they had to choose this from the other thirty? Give me the tell me your story and then support it from 1924. That's all I'm asking. Again, I this is why I say don't tell me what the Islamic traditions tell me. Tell me what's happening in the seventh century. Mm -hmm. Don't tell me what Muslims today in two thousand twenty-one or tell or two thousand twenty are telling me. Tell me what happened in nineteen twenty-four. So just go back to its source. In fact, that's exactly what you asked me to do, didn't you? Just now. Yeah. So in the sense that we're we're at the two hour mark, and there's there's so much information just downloading that. Um, it, it was a and I've engaged with some of your videos already, and your response to Yasikari and and. 
so there's there's still so much information to process but if i was to go to a muslim friend we're having a a, a beverage together of some sort how how would you start to <laughs> bring this information now, well, where, where you're asking the million dollar question and yeah. let me just say this phil um why don't you just ask the five questions i asked just Kadi? i'm just going to pull him bring it up right here in yeah, my video Jay's ultra trepidarian response to Yosef Kadi, which I made within two hours of that happening. I wrote, I asked five questions at the end of that video, and here they are. Why don't you just, and those of you who are listening, just ask your Muslim friends these five questions. Number one, which of the 30 official Kidaats, these are just nine of them right here, is the one that's in heaven? Or the one revealed to Muhammad by Jibril uh, before he died in 19, uh, 632? Or the one which is written down by Uthman in 652. Which one of these is it? That's all you need to ask. That's a simple question, is it not? Mm -hmm. This is the exact same question that Muhammad Hijab kept on asking Yasir Qadi in that 25-minute interview. So I want to see an answer. Yasir Qadi did not give us an answer in that 51 minutes where he was just yelling and screaming and hollering at us. He mm -hmm. never dealt with that question, no. the original question. So have your Muslim friend answer that question. Number two. He, Kaisal mentioned the corruption of Yale in his university. He was talking about the corruption of Yale. And he was also talking about how you cannot trust any school like Rice University that where Dale or Dan Gibson, I'm sorry, Dan uh, Brubaker got his, his PhD. What does he mean by that? And what was it that happened to him at Yale that he's saying it is a corrupt individual, it's a corrupt institution? And if that is so, is he willing now to throw away his PhD that he got from there? Mm. Now that's getting back to your question, Dan. Should we be asking this question if he has still not in 25 years been able to answer the question that was th that caused him this crisis of knowledge in 1990, 1995, and in 25 years he could not answer it in 25 minutes, then is that the fault of Yale and Rice University for giving Dan a, Bru uh, a Brubaker a PhD? What is it about Western, Western, what is it about this hatred of the West? Because we ask questions that you're not supposed to, Explain and under, help us understand that because this is something that is, I think, is very troubling. Is he suggesting, therefore, that only Islamic institutions can answer this question and therefore we should only listen to Islamic institutions that are basically given a rubber, that are given a credit, uh, accredited by Medina or Jeddah or Saudi Arabia? Because if that's the case, then we might as well as throw out historical criticism because none of this, no, there is no such thing as historical criticism in any Islamic institution that I know of. But that's that's a standard. Sorry, that's a standard Dawah play, though, isn't it? That if you start critiquing, critiquing the Quran and oh, you don't know Arabic, and uh, you've seen it in um, the sort of debates you've had with Hijab uh, Speakers Corner. Let me school you on on these languages. You clearly don't know Arabic, so isn't that just a standard strategy of how to absolutely? And, and the way I've always answered is, I've had two years of Arabic. What is it that I don't know about what I've just said? And yeah. I'm not doing this research. Mm -hmm. yeah. Are you suggesting yeah. Dr. Shadi Nasser doesn't know Arabic? Are you saying are you suggesting Dr. Dan Brubaker doesn't know Arabic? Yeah. Have you even seen the Arabic that they use? So be careful about that. But let me ask you that, Phil. Anytime a Muslim makes a uh, makes a uh, anytime a Muslim criticizes our Bible, do we ask him first whether or not he understands Hebrew or Greek? Aramaic, yeah. Yeah. Do we say this of any Christian that, had, that whenever we get into a discussion about Jesus or about the Bible or about a, or any reference or any verse, do we say, first of all, no, no, don't even ask the question unless you know according to Greek. Mm -hmm. what, yeah. a stupid, what a stupid thing to say. Yeah. Just, but, just, but we don't claim that God 
only speaks in Arabic. So it's, it's I, okay, I find it just one, a fascinating take on on how how God has revealed Himself. I mean, it's just an an amazing difference, and and I love the way you put it. Just the sort of the things that we don't have problems with. Well, God speaks every language because He created all people, and that, that's just not a problem we have. So let's just deal with it in English, and we can work with that. But it is something that the the Quran is it that claims, or is it just tradition that claims that Arabic has to be that that's the preservation? That's the whole argument, isn't well, the it? The Quran does say that this is the Arab book for the Arab people in the Arabic language. If that is the case, then this book is only for Arabs, whereas mm -hmm. this book is for everybody because we've translated this in 2,500 languages and we don't have any problem with them reading it in their own language, including English, including all the many different derivations that Dan tried to bring up about two hours ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you see why is it that we can understand this book in every language and you can only understand this book in Arabic, which is then is the bigger, which is the more revelation for you mm. and which is the God for you? If God can only communicate in one language, then he's a pretty limited God. Yes. My yeah. God can communicate in every language at every time, which means my God, this is the universal God. This is a God for those of you who are listening, including you Arabs, because he can communicate to you in Arabic. Why can't our your God communicate to me in English? Ooh, doo, 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 doo. <laughs> Who's got the bigger God? Come Could on. Could you over. just go back to that first question, Queenie? Just when you talk about the the the, the thirty uh, uh thirty Qurans, are we? Because um, a lot of people say, well, that you, you know, you're talking about translations. There's different translations of the Quran, but there's there's only one Quran. What's the how? how what's the I never said translations. I know, I know, I know. You didn't. But I'm saying what Muslims will say is, oh no, they're they're different translations of the of of, of the Quran. So what? what no, Muslim, no Muslim should say that because these are all Arabic. So how can they be translations? So, but is it is it well known? Because a lot of people, when I've spoken to Muslims, they don't always, they won't even. I have to argue for the point that there are 30 different Arabic Qurans. Hmm. Uh, Just use that word Arabic right there. Translation means into another language. Yeah. So okay. yeah. So no, just I, define what you mean. Yeah. Hmm. So, so it, it's not it's not it's not controversial to state that there are thirty different Arabic Qurans. It's absolutely controversial because they no one knew this until June eighth of this year. Can you see why this is such an amazing uh, year? Because that that's what I mean. Is it's, it's it's yeah it's yeah. Listen, Dan and <laughs> Phil, this is this has been known within academia, Islamic academia, for a thousand years. It has not come down to the to popular level until June eighth, until that interview. Nobody, even when we held up those 26 Qurans all, all at Speaker's Corner, there were maybe 20,000 people that saw that. Today, I just re-put that one up after June 8th. Already, it's, it's approaching 50,000. Mm. It's been reproduced all over the Internet. And yet that happened four years ago. This is the first time that Muslims are hearing about it in a public way. And that's why you have to give thanks to YouTube. That's why we can go so much faster with YouTube than what Wellhausen was able to go with in the 1800s. If if yeah. I went to my local Islamic bookshop at the at the Quran uh, at, the, at the mosque, would I be able to buy more than one Arabic Quran there? Absolutely, these are. I got these in July. You can get these online. So what are these? What? Why is it that they're still printing them? Why have they thrown them in the Nile? That, that's what I mean. That, that's that's what that's what I get because that, that's as I was trying the to get. Reason out, why it seems, it is seems that absurd. every family memorizes it differently. Every family memorizes the way their father and their grandfather and their tribe me memorize it. And so some people memorize water, especially in North Africa. This is used all over North Africa. Mm. In North Africa, they don't use the huffs. They use this one. Where's my huffs? Here it is here. This is not used in North Africa. This one is used in North Africa. So that's why you don't want to memorize it. You, if you've memorized your Quran, there are 5,000 differences. 
You don't want to, you don't therefore want to have this Quran in your hand. You want to make sure you go everywhere with this Quran. That's why they're still being printed today. Okay. It's such so, a good question because it's, yeah. really, it's really interesting. Because there, are 30, there are 30 different Arabic Qurans and they're different ones are used in different regions of, of, of the Muslim world. Exactly. One, and there are about 93,000 differences that we have found so far. Which is the one that was revealed. It's a really, it's a really I'm quite looking, quite looking forward to chatting to someone about it. Okay, we'll that's, out. Let me go with number three now. This is another question yeah. you can ask. In his SmackDown video, Yasakadi said he shouldn't have used certain words. There are holes in your narrative. That's the word he shouldn't have used. So, um, why was he, th therefore, why did he have to delete the, what did he mean then? And what words would he rather use? So if there are holes in the narrative in June 8th, and now there are no holes in the narrative on November 26th, what then would he describe this problem that's been around for a thousand years? What then, how will he then uh, alleviate that problem? I don't know. How, what, I would love to see what Muslims will answer to that. What, what, how would you then help us understand? If this has been the most difficult question for a thousand years, and Muslims still are not able to answer it, and Yasat Qadi was still not able to answer it after 25 years, let mm. alone 25 minutes in a, in a filmed interview, to me, that shows that there's all kinds of holes. What are you, how are you going to answer? Where are you going to go with this? What are the, what, if that was a poor choice of words, what other words would he put in its way? Number four. Yeah. Does Yasir Qadi still believe that the Quran we have today, and this is what you need to say to your Muslim friends, after seeing what Yasir Qadi says, after now knowing and seeing what we have now showed, after looking at all these different Qurans, are you willing to say that there is not one word or not one letter that's different? Throw that at them. Any Muslim you meet now, are you willing to say that this book has not changed? Because we're going to show you 93,000 different words. 5,000 in just these two alone, the two most popular ones. If you're going to continue to say that, are you either just lying or do you really do you really believe there are no differences? Because this has categorically been proven now and now has been admitted by all your... It wasn't just Yasad Qadi. Dr. Shabidani said this on May 19th. Hmm. He it's said mind, it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. Hmm. It, it, it is... So can you now say that there are no words or letters? And if you are now say that there are differences in words and letters, then what are you going to do with chapter 10, verse 15? What are you going to do with chapter 15, verse 9? What are you going to do with chapter 18, verse 27? What are you going to do now with chapter 85, verse 22? How can this therefore be preserved? And how can you say that this comes from God? It looks like it only comes from men. Wow. And then number five. Where is that original Quran that you're all talking about? Where is that Quran that was revealed, written in its complete form by Uthman in 652 and sent out to five different cities? Obviously, none of these are it because these are over 100 years later. These continue right up until 905, so two to 300 years later. So where is that original Quran? You can't go to any of the manuscripts. You can't go to the Topkapi because that's mid-8th century. You can't go to the Samarkand because that's uh, beginning of the 8th century. You can't go to the Petropolitans because that's 705. You cannot go to the Husseini manuscript because that's in the 9th century. You cannot go to the Ma'il or the Sana manuscripts because those are all 8th century or late 7th century. You can't go to one Quran, any manuscript that you can find today that is from the time of Uthman. What about the one? You can go to fragments. You can go to fragments like the Birmingham folios. That's what I was going to talk about. Yeah. That's just two folios. That's just two pages. And look what's on it. If the carbon dating is correct, that goes from 568 to 645. 568, 
That's two years before Muhammad was born. 645, that's seven years before Uthman canonized the text. Are you telling me that's it? And look at those two pages. They have nothing to do with Islam. They have to do with the seven sleepers of, of uh, the seven sleepers of Ephesus. They have to do with James the Lesser, and they have to do with Moses. All three of those stories existed from the second, third, and fourth century. I would suggest these are nothing more than earlier texts that were then incorporated into the Quran at a later date. These are part of the borrowing. So of course they'd be earlier. Hmm. That's interesting. Just a question on... And it's only 30, you're talking only about 33 verses out of 6,000 verses. Mm. And these aren't even the third, these are from sure 18, 19, and 20. And they're not even, they're not even the full. In fact, they're only a third. In fact, they're only a quarter of what's in those three surahs. And all three of the stories that are in those two, those the two folios, there's just one back of two folios, are from borrowed sources that came before the Quran. Just on, on this claim. Okay, this I'm, I just want to answer Callum right here. Isn't it true yeah. that the claim that Quran isn't changed to the letter is a recent claim? How far back does it go? Absolutely, Callum. And you are correct. This is a modern uh, apologetic. This is not anything. You don't study this. You don't see this in any of the earliest traditions. Listen, the earliest traditions are all reference after reference in the ninth and even in the ninth and tenth century. They're talking about Al Hajjaj changing 11 different parts of the Quran. Uh, they're talking about Aisha saying, tell me what this surah is. Tell me what it says. He says, well, say it this way. You're seeing you're seeing parts of it have been have been taken out. Look at the words on Rajam, uh, chapter 24, verse 2. Uh, chapter 2, verse 24, sorry. Chapter 2, verse 24, the story of a, uh, 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 beating, uh, uh, stoning the adulterer. That has now been changed to beating and giving 100 lashes and claiming that. Even Uthman, uh, Umar, supposedly saying, what are we going to do when they, they read this verse? Because... Uh, we used to stone, and the prophet used to stone of, uh, before us, but now all now it says to do 100 lashes. People are going to say we've changed the Quran. So there's reference after reference after reference in the traditions about how the Quran was changed. But remember, these traditions are 9th and 10th century. So certainly they never made this kind of claim. This is a modern claim, and this claim really was introduced only in the 11th century. So the second part of columns, when did this be introduced? This got introduced in the, about 1056 by Ibn Hazm, who started and realized he was the first one to read, look at the Bible. And when he looked at the Bible versus the Quran, he realized that they're two completely different books. So he said, therefore, that it was the Bible that has been corrupted, and we have that the Quran has never been corrupted. So it really started in the 11th century, about 1056 till today. It seems such a bizarre claim to introduce because it makes your life a lot harder <laughs> to defend. Well, again, remember, remember, this is this is to complete against the Christians because at that yeah. time their biggest threat are the Christians, and the Christians have said that this Bible goes way back and has never been changed. And they said, yes, it has been changed because look at all these differences. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, I mean, there are so many con contradictions between the Bible and the Quran. So what do you do? Well, then you blame the Bible for being corrupted, and you say the Quran is not corrupted and it has never been corrupted. And then, of course, the Quran itself makes that claim. Remember. Of course, yeah. it's the Quran that says it's never been changed. It's the Quran that said it's been being protected. It's the Quran that said it's eternal. Could could you explain the difference? You've got these thirty different Arabic Qurans. What about the seven uh, recitations? How does how does that fit in? Because there's there's seven seven different ways I understand that the uh, the the Quran can be recited. So how does okay. it? How does and this that is a good question. And 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 what you need to do is whenever that claim comes up, ask the Muslim where are those seven? What are those seven? And it'd be good of you to go up and just get a copy of this. It's gone Wikipedia. Just put Kira'at in Wikipedia and get this, this diagram. Now, I've colored it. It won't be colored. It'll just be black and white. Because these are the seven that they're talking about. Whenever you ask Muslims, okay, here and here's what I'll say. The seven, when you ever ask a Muslim these seven that you're talking about, where did these? Where did you hear the story about the seven? And it's from Al-Buhari. When did Al-Buhari write this? 
he wrote it in 870. What century is that? That's the late 9th century. How many years is that after Muhammad? That's 240 years after Muhammad. So you're telling me that a 9th century compiler said that there were seven ahruf, seven different readings. Okay? Uh, what's the story behind it? Give me an unpacked. And what they'll tell you is that when Muhammad started receiving the Quran, we assume in the Qurayshi dialect, that there were other people there in, um, in Mecca who did not understand what he was saying because they had different dialects. So he goes to Jibril and he says to Jibril, oh, we, need it we need it received, I need to receive it in other dialects. And so he then, Jibril then gives him in six other dialects. Now it doesn't say it like I just said. What they say is that there was one man who heard another, who heard uh, another man reciting the Quran in a different way, and he grabbed him by the scruff of his neck and brought him to Muhammad and says, "Now say what you just said." So he said what he just said, and then and then Muhammad said, "Well, now tell me what the way you would have heard it." And so he said the way he had heard it as the Quraysh dialect, and Muhammad had said, "Yes, both are correct, for I have received from Jibril seven different ways," which suggests to me that Muhammad could understand all seven of those dialects. Stop and think that through. How many dialects of English do you know, Dan? Um, <laughs> one. One. <laughs> right? Whatever is your dialect, right? Yeah. Can you recite it, uh, dialects in the in Indian English or the way we Americans recite with all our words and our idiomatic expressions that have different words and different letters completely from yours? With great difficulty. I, I might do it with difficult. <laughs> But can you see, dialectical differences, by definition, require to have a written text, if it's written down, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah. he receives it orally seven different ways, which suggests to me he must have been either to Kufa or had been to Basra, and certainly must have been out as far away as Damascus to learn these dialects. I don't recall anywhere in his traditions where he learned these dialects. He lived almost all his time in Mecca and Medina. And if he did go up there, he only went as a caravaner. He only stayed there a few days, then he came back down again. So how did he learn these seven dialects that quickly? And more on that, if this was so, then how come you don't have any reference of him re reciting it in seven different dialects? And why was this a surprise to these two men when they brought him by the scruff of his neck? More than that, if that is the case, by the time Uthman comes to power in 652 and Hodaifa is way up in Azerbaijan and they're having a battle in Azerbaijan, he's in charge of all the Meccans and Medinans. He then goes into the mosque on the Friday, uh, in, the, uh, while the, in the lull of the battle, and he hears all these Iraqis and Damascans reciting the Quran in their own dialects. He goes to blows with them. They fight each other, and the Hudaifa comes back down to Medina, and he tells Uthman what has happened, and he says, we must be careful that we don't have the Quran in other dialects. We, Like the Christians and Jews do, we must get it as one Quran, and that's why Uthman then wrote it in the Qureshi dialect, had it written by Zaid ibn Thabi. And then he destroyed all the others. So by 652, there are no more dialectical differences. Now, Muslims will say the only thing he destroyed were dialectical differences. Oral. That's the argument you brought at the very beginning of this session. Yeah. Hold on a minute. How can you burn oral dialects? <laughs> yeah. We've, we've met. It's your problem here. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty tough. You can't burn people's mouths or burn their esophagus. You can't burn orality. You can only burn written text. You can only burn books or pieces of car, uh, the, uh, pieces of parchment, right? Hmm. So obviously, if he's burning something, he's burning text. Secondly, now you don't know Arabic, but anybody who knows Arabic will know what I'm going to say next. How do you find dialectical differences such as Iraqi dialect, Damascan dialect, Basran dialect, Qureshi dialect, in a written form, unless you use five dots and three vowels. 
The only way you can find dialectical differences, you need to have dots and vowels. That's why if you go to Cairo today and buy a newspaper on a stand there, it will not have many of the dots or vowels written on it. It'll just have the script with certain dots, but it won't have any vowels. Why? Because they want to make sure that that newspaper is also read by people from Iraq and people from uh, from uh, Morocco. They want to make sure that people in Jordan can read it because they will read it. They will put their own vowels in it. The Dhamma, the Qasr, and the Fatah. There are only three vowels. To make sure that they get as many people that read this newspaper so they'll get much more higher circulation, they keep the vowels out of it. Those vowels didn't exist in the 7th century. So how can you have dialectical differences in a written text in the 7th century in Arabia? Ooh, two, 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 two. No one has thought this through. Hmm. And only the Arab under people who speak Arabic and read and write Arabic realize this argument. This would make sense in the 9th century when Buhari was writing this story. Because in the 9th century, there in Baghdad, there were all kinds of dialectical differences written down in a written text. Because the 9th century, 240 years later, there were all kinds of dots and vowels. And by that time, most of these kirat now were, in, were well formed. In fact, almost all of these, not all, yet because they go up until 905. But I would say of the 700 that existed, maybe about 500 had already existed. So he was aware that this is a real problem. He is taking what he was knows in the 9th century there in Baghdad, and he's redacting it back to the 7th century without realizing you can't have it because he didn't realize that there were no dots and vowels that early. Ooh, that's why. We know that because we have the earliest manuscripts to look at. This is why we in the 21st century can understand that this is error after error after error, and only people like Jassi Nas Shadi Nasser are picking this up. Hmm. It's the academics that are picking this up. Now, this is a very academic argument I'm throwing at you. So don't worry about it. You don't have to understand it. But for those who understand this, can you see? This is hole after hole after hole. We're finding all kinds of holes in the narrative. I mean, Yasser Qadi has given us a great phrase, and that's going to be the standard phrase we're from here on out. I'm, we're going to find millions of holes. Hmm. Maybe not. Maybe that's too much. Let's say thousands of holes. <laughs> and I suggest that Yasser Qadi has done us a great favor. That interview really opened up a can of worms and gave us the narrative and the holes in the narrative that we will be using from here on out. So anyone, ever you hear this phrase, holes in the narrative, we're talking about all these problems, not just the ones of the Kira'at. And it's, it's really interesting because it has changed the dynamic of how I think about engaging with with my Muslim friends from what I've heard. And, and one of the questions that we've continually visited uh, in just sort of basic Christian apologetics has been this one that you can see at the end of the comment. How do Muslims deal with abrogation if the Quran is eternal? I know abrogation was always a big issue, but I'm not sure I'd bring that up anymore just because there's far more interesting conversations to have. But I'll be interested in your, in just with this question, just to kind of get it out there. It, a, would you even go into abrogation with a conversation with a, a Muslim at the moment? Yeah, I think that's perfectly okay. Uh, 130 Apologetics has got it on the, on the hold. That is a real problem. That's just another one of the thousands of holes. Let me show you why. In the Quran, you have two verses, chapter 2, verse 106, and chapter 16, verse 101, which stipulates that that which we give, mansuk, we give something better, nasik. Mansuk means weak, nasik means strong. So that which Allah gives in his in his book, and that's only referring to the Quran. Remember, we're not talking about scripture here. We're talking within the Quran that there is mansuk and nasik. Mansuk means that which comes first is abrogated, or we give something better by that which comes later. So what comes first would be Meccan versus Medina. Meccan are from chapter 20 to the end, 
Medinan would be chapter one to roughly around chapter 20. So the first half of the Quran would be Medinan. It comes later. It would be Nasik. The latter part of the Quran would be Meccan. It is Mansuk. It comes first. So if there's any contradiction between these two halves, of which there are hundreds of contradictions, on my paper that I have on the Quran, I have about 52 good ones that you can use just in, in public discourse. What do you do with these with these contradictions? You always, 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 always go with the Medinan, the later. That was revealed between 622 to 632. Now, hold on. You might come back and say, how am I talking about this when I've already said the Quran didn't exist? This is, this is I'm now doing two different arguments simultaneously. What we've done all the way up to now is called the external argument of the Quran. That's called the historical argument. What I'm now doing is what we call the internal argument of the Quran, looking at the Quran as is, and now confronting it from... From from the pages from the pages of the book itself, do you see there's two different genres of argument here? Mm -hmm. Are you following that? Yeah, yeah. And you need to do that with all pieces of book. Listen, we do that with the Bible. When you're talking about the historical credibility of the Bible, you're talking about the external uh, the external argument. Did it exist? You know what kind of manuscript evidence that kind of stuff. But when you look at the the content of the Bible internally and look at the logical fallacies within the Bible, that's a whole different set of discussion that you can have with Christians and with non-Christians without even talking about whether or not the the Bible was was written or not in the first century. Two completely different arguments, both valid. And this abrogation is an internal argument. And it's saying, how can you have a word of God that is eternal and yet contradicting itself? Now, the answer to that is it, it is this. It is um, what's, uh, it's what we would say between the Old and New Testament. This is progressive revelation. Right. So there's progressive revelation between Mecca and Medina. So what happened in Mecca there, what Muhammad was receiving in Mecca, no longer existed in Medina because in Mecca he was... Under he was not under he was under authority of others, and much of the material that he has there is has to do with Christianity and Islam. Once he moved to Medina, he now was in authority, and hardly anything in Medina has to do with Christianity and Islam or Judaism. It has all to do with ruling and his wives and everything that was helping. That's why the sewers are much much larger. That's how they would answer it. The difficulty I have with that is, if this is an eternal book, how can you have abrogation within an eternal book unless you're going to use progressive revelation? Yeah. The difficulty is many of these contradictions have nothing to do with progressive revelation. No. If you have in one case in Surah 7 and in Surah 30 that the, the earth was created in seven days, and then you have in Surah 41 that it's created in eight days, that has nothing to do with progressive revelation. That's a, that's a, that's a scientific fact that is, that, is, that is an abrogation. You've got to deal. You're contradicting yourself scientifically. Hmm. Okay, so that's how you can argue that. So that's an internal argument, and there's a whole litany of that. And I've done a whole series of studies on all these historical errors, these scientific problems, these difficulties, these anachronisms, and these internal contradictions. That's an entirely different genre of what we would call polemics than the historical argument. I would prefer uh, uh, apologetics 136 or whatever his name was. Yeah, I would prefer great. the historical yeah. argument because it's much more damaging. Secondly, this is another reason. Uh, I did a debate with Dr. David Wood. Do you know who David Wood is? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I did a debate with him in California about three weeks ago uh, in, uh, on whether or not Muhammad existed on this very discussion. I don't know if you've had a chance to see that debate. It's gone viral all over the Internet. David Wood, Sam Samoon, Hatun Tosh, our good friend there in London, have made an industry out of confronting the Muhammad of the Quran. This guy over here, the Muhammad of the traditions. Sorry, did I say Quran? Yeah, Muhammad of the traditions. Sorry, I didn't mean the Quran. That's a, that's a, see, I, I, 
that's a good thing that I, I that I make mistakes as well. <laughs> so Muhammad of the traditions, ninth and tenth century, they are absolutely dependent that he is the real Muhammad because their whole career is based on it. They need him there because he is such an easy person to mock and make fun of. And if you look at David Wood, he has done an amazing job of destroying that Muhammad. So has Sam Shamoon. So has almost everybody, including myself. I did yeah. that for the first 20 years. That's all I did was confront Muhammad, that Muhammad. He's easy to confront. The difficulty with that is it borders on hate speech. It's very close to Islamophobia. And whenever I did it, people were saying, you're a hate, you hate Islam. No, I don't. Well, it's not that I hate Islam. But they interpret that as I hate Muslims. No, I don't hate Muslims. Mm. That has nothing to do with hating Muslims. I, if you want to say if I hate anybody, it's Muhammad. That's why I'm mocking him, because he is not relevant for today. And David Wood and Sam Shamoon and Hatun Tosh and, and almost anybody who is working in this area of apologetics and polemics have used that paradigm over and over again. I, however, would rather go over here to this side. I would rather use historical criticism. Why? Because historical criticism goes beyond it mocking Muhammad to, hold on a minute, did he even exist? Mm -hmm. Now, in using that kind of material, I'm not mocking Muhammad, number one. Therefore, I cannot be called a hate preacher. There's nothing we've done in the last two and a half hours. Well, we've been going almost two and a half hours now. There's not anything I've said that's hateful, is it? Have you picked up any hate there? Nope. Have I mocked any? Have I mocked Muhammad at all? Have I mocked Islam mm -hmm. at all? No. Nope. No, there's no reason to. Why would I want to? More than that, I cannot be taken to court with this, so it's a lot safer for me because that's why I don't get strikes. Have you noticed David Wood and, and, and yeah. uh, Hutton Tosh get strike after strike after strike on their videos? I don't. Why don't I get strike? Because there's nothing hateful about what I'm doing. Mm. Also, is this not the more damaging? Because if you're going to sit there and mock Muhammad, what's going to happen? Muslims are going to turn you off. They're not going to listen. And the vast majority of people that listen and watch and deal with David Wood, if you look at it, the guy is absolutely popular. 500,000 subscribers. Who gets that kind of subscribers in this kind of material that's not entertaining? Well, it is entertaining because he's very entertaining. Yeah. The guy's an amazing communicator. And he's actually very funny. <clears throat> but the difficulty is not many Muslims watch his videos. They are coming to Christ because of it. I'm not, absolutely are. The difficulty is he's not, that when you start mocking Muhammad, Muslims usually turn away. Over on our site, if you look at the people who are watching, about a third of the people who comment are Muslims. They are angry, but they're not angry at me. They're angry yeah. with the material. Yeah. They don't know how to deal with the material. I get emails almost every week now from Muslims who have left Islam because of this material. Wow. Almost every week. And I've never seen this kind of traffic that's come by since this year. Goodness sakes. I, I, the videos I put up a, a year ago would get maybe 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 views. Now almost every video goes over 10,000 within a few days. And the reason why is because we're hitting at the very foundations of Islam over here. When you start questioning the root of everything Muslims believe. And we're really, remember, as I said at the very beginning of the show, there are two things every Muslims are dependent on, and that's one book and one man. Exactly the same way, there are two things we're dependent on, one book and a man as well. But we have had a book that has gone through every one of these criticisms. Their Quran is just now beginning to go through these criticisms. Hmm. We've got a person of Jesus Christ that has stood withstood every criticism. Muhammad is not able to even understand, even withstand one of these criticisms. Now, that kind of material that we're using today, 
I, I don't know. Now, this is the first time you've heard this, isn't it, Phil and, Phil and Dan? So, yeah, and I've, I've heard bits of it. So I kind of follow your site. Um, I think Dan's just popped off to his uh, family for a minute. But the, um, yeah, I've, I'm, I'm kind of entry level, <laughs> I'd say. Okay, but did you, under, did you not understand everything I've said today? I have understood everything you said, yeah. yeah. Okay, it's easy to understand it, yeah. right? Absolutely. I've not shown you any pictures. I've not shown you any inscriptions. I've not shown you any coins. I've not shown you any Kiblas. I don't even have to show it to you. You can understand what I'm saying. Absolutely, yeah. And I, but I also know where I could then test that. So I'm not well, sure. I would suggest everyone... almost everybody that's watching. I don't know who's all yeah. watching and how many people you have right now. But I would suggest that the vast majority of them also could understand everything I've said today. It is yeah. the easiest material we've ever come across. I've never seen something this easy. I've never it's, had this basic. easy a job trying to communicate what I'm saying because you don't have to know Arabic for what I'm saying today. There's not a mm -hmm. word of Arabic you have to know for anything. That, and the fact that you two guys who are not in this field, this is foreign to you, are able to understand everything I've said so suggests to me that this is by far the best material we've come across. It's yeah. politically correct. It is visual. It is also understandable. And it is not in any way hateful. Mm -hmm. which suggests to me also that anybody can use this. Notice, anybody can use this material. You don't have to be a Christian. In fact, when I left Speaker's Corner back in 2017, my last Sunday down there, July 30th, I think it was, the last person to see me go was an atheist. He came up to me. He had tears in his eyes when he heard that I was leaving. And he took my hand and he just said, please don't leave. Please don't leave. I said, what do you mean, please don't leave? You've been a thorn in our side all these years. You've been castigating us, making all kinds of fun, making mocking us, all the rest. He says, why do you want me to stay? He says, because you're the first Christian that's made any sense to any of us atheists. I said, what? I'm the first Christian? He said, "He said yes, You know, we're sick and tired of Christians always giving us their testimony. Because that's all you Christians do, what God has done for you. Mm. Well, that may be so for you, but that God's never done that for me. And that just, you know, that we just don't really want to listen to you anymore. But you're the first one that's actually asked a much deeper question. And it's just three words. Is it true? Mm -hmm. That's all we're asking you Christians. And you're not dealing with that. You're the first one that has dealt with those three, those three words. Because you have not sat there and told us your testimony. You haven't told us what God has done for you. You've asked the, the historical question is, if I'm going to believe in the Bible, then I've got I've to support it so that you understand it. I've got to listen to your questions, and I've got to come up with responses so that you will be uh, convinced. Hmm. And then you, didn't, you start using those same questions against Islam. And we've seen how the Muslims cannot answer any of your questions. He says, I love this material. I want to use it. I want to learn it. I, and I turned to him, and I says, please don't use it. Please don't use it because hmm. all you're going to do is destroy the faith of the Muslims that you're talking to, but you have nothing to offer them. You have nothing. You have no alternative to give them. This is not your discussion. This is not your argument. This is our argument. This is something only Christians should use. Not because there's nothing Christian polemic about it. This is not a Christian polemic. This is a neutral historical polemic. But we are the only ones that can give these dear people, these dear men and women who do believe in God. You don't. And I don't want them to hear, listen to you. I want to give them, I want them to bring them back to the real God. Because I love the fact that they believe in God. I love the fact that they believe in heaven and hell. I love the fact that they believe in revelation. But you don't have anything to give them. You're going to destroy the revelation and you're going to say, you're just going to give them nihilism. I want to bring them back to a better book. I want to, I want to destroy the Quran and bring them back to this book. The bigger, the better book. That's why I always keep my 
Bible bigger than Micron. You know it's bigger for that reason, so you can visually see which is the bigger, the better book. <laughs> and I said, you can't do that, but we can. This is really something that only Christians should be doing. Hmm. You're going to destroy their view of God, and you're going to give them nothing in as an alternative. I want to take them away from Allah and bring them back to Yahweh. You're right. not, you don't even know who Jesus is, yet at least they love Jesus. They mm -hmm. call him Issa. I don't care for that Issa because there's nothing about him that I like because he did, denies his divinity and then refuses to get on the cross. That's not my Jesus. So I want to take him from Issa and bring him back to Yeshua, the real name for Jesus in Arabic. Issa is not even a word. Yeah. They've got the wrong God. They've got the wrong Jesus. They've got the wrong name. And I want to bring him home. So really, and I'm saying this to all of you who are watching, this is really our discussion. This is our argument. We are the only ones that should be using this because we are the only ones that can, God bless these Muslims. I mean, why would I dedicate 38 years of my life to them if I didn't love them? I absolutely love them. I just don't like to see what this Quran has done to them. I hate what this book has done to them. The hate that is there, the violence that is there. Look at the last 1400 years. Look what it's done to these great people. These amazing people in the Middle East. And look at all the bloodshed that this book has caused. Hmm. I want to get him away from this book. I want to bring him back to the real peace. The only peace where Jesus says the only one. He says to us, we must not hate our enemies. We must love our enemies. That only Jesus is. That's why it really should be our job, both Dan and Phil. This should be something that we should be using in our uh, uh environments with our muslims and probably the best way is to use the same arguments that have been thrown against our bible why don't we just take those same arguments and ask them of the quran mm -hmm. why don't the same arguments that have been thrown against jesus christ why don't we take those same arguments and throw them against muhammad and then bring them back to jesus christ because listen muslims come up to me over and over again they said we love jesus why don't you love muhammad and i say exactly of course you love jesus Everybody loves Jesus. What's there not to love about mm, Jesus? Mm -hmm. Even Madonna loves Jesus. <laughs> Everybody loves Jesus. There's nothing wrong with Jesus. He's as relevant today as the day he came 2,000 years ago. But Muhammad, you got about an hour. I'll tell you all the problems I have for Muhammad. But, you know, I'd rather not even do that. I'd just rather bring him back to Jesus. So mm. I think, you know, in some ways, everything that we've been talking about in the last two and a half hours really is something that Christians should be engaging with, that Christians should be involved with, because it not is it, there's nothing hateful about what we're saying here. Uh, and we understand it best because it's all been applied to our Bible, to our Lord Jesus Christ. But therefore, we understand the paradigms. We understand redacted criticism better than anybody else. We understand source criticism. We understand textual criticism. All these criticisms, we understand them best because we know where it's been used, and therefore, we can also apply it best. But then, you know, that means that we're going to have to learn this book. Mm. We're going to have to learn about Muhammad. And that's what most Christians don't want to do. Yeah. The, this, the, I'm still processing most of that. And there's so much good stuff in there to sort of take away and, and digest. So I'm just going to say to the stream, we're, we're coming up to um, probably the lim my, my upper limits on, on sitting in front of a screen. Um, but there's there's a couple um, questions here. So one one's a quick one. Jay, uh, are you ever going to go back to Speaker's Corner? Yeah, I come back every time I come through London. Uh, I come to Speaker's Corner right, because Hatun Tosh is there. She was on my team. Yeah. She now is taken, has taken over my ministry there. You had Beth Peltola. Uh, yeah. When I left London, I left five women behind. I could not find one man could do what I was doing. Only the women could do it. Isn't that interesting? It is interesting. There were just no men that would come and do what I was doing at Speaker's Corner every Sunday except for five women. 
And the five, three of them now are don't have their own ministries. They're completely growing faster and quicker than ever I could go. One is Hatun Tosh, who has DCCI. So when you go up on YouTube, go to DCCI, Defending Christ, Critiquing Islam, you must bring her on board uh, so she can desecrate the English language like she does every Sunday at Speaker's Corner. And then, of course, Beth Peltola. She was Beth Grove when I knew her. She's now married to uh, to Peltola, beautiful Finnish man. And she has now started a whole new ministry called um, One Truth, One Truth Project. Uh, Project, One Truth Project, which I'm working with her. And so I'm helping teaching the One Truth course with her. And then Sarah, who used to be called uh, Sarah Foster, now she's Sarah Lumger. Uh, Sarah Lumger is okay. uh, just amazing. She is now the spokeswoman for Islam on Premier Radio. She is the one that they use in Premier for all the Islamic work. So, I mean, these three have just gone from strength to strength to strength. And so it's because of it's because of these three women that I, you know, I've, in some ways that's the legacy I left behind. But they're moving faster and quicker than ever I could have done when I was there. Whenever I come back, then I always go down to Speaker's Corner and I get up on the uh, on the uh, on the ladder with Hatun. And usually we introduce something that's brand new. Now, this girl, Hatun Tosh, only sleeps four nights a week. The other three nights and days, she's up all night and day studying, 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 studying. And that's why she puts up sometimes one, two, sometimes three videos a day. Try to keep up with her. And so try to keep up with her trying. knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> Girl, so you have to put her she is amazing. We would she love has been in 400 mosques all by herself. She just walks into mosque after mosque after mosque. Carrying, now it's up to 37 different Qurans. She has up to 37 that she has collected. Whoa. Another 12 more than when we had in 2006. She carries them in a bag behind her, and she just insists, to the, my mom, we're going to sit down and look at your Qurans. They throw her out. She comes back the next week. They throw her out. She comes back the third week. By that time, they finally let her stay. And in the last year that I was there, I don't know what the near latest statistics are, but in the last year I was there, she brought 125 Muslims to Jesus Christ, only using polemics, mm. only using polemics. The thing we were told never to do. You never confront the book. You never confront the man. You never confront the Quran. You never confront Muhammad. That's all that she confronts. Five imams she brought to Jesus Christ. All single hand. I don't know if anybody in England that's done that, done what she's done. Now, that was just the last year that I was there. I haven't kept up with her to ask her what she's done yeah. since then. But, you know, she has been vilified. She's been beaten up. She's uh, had her neck almost broken. She's had her ribs broken. She's had her foot broken. Um, even then, with all these broken parts, she would still get up on the ladder with me, refusing to even stay in the hospital, even though she had a high fever. The woman is amazing. I've never seen anybody like her. But, then, you know, she when, every, when she came back to the hospital, hobbling in crutches with broken foot, all done in a mosque, they tried to kill her there. I said, you know, they're going to kill you. And she said, well, it's all your fault, Jay. I said, what do you mean it's my fault? She says, well, because you told me to read chapter 17 to 19 of Acts. And you just read chapter 17 to 19. And look what Paul did. Mm -hmm. She's just doing what Paul did. She's doing the exact same thing. Paul is my model. He went from synagogue to synagogue, went right in, confronted the Jews. They threw him into prison. They beat him up. They whipped him. Twice they tried to stone him to death. They caused a riot in Ephesus, and they finally killed him in Rome. So she said, of course I'm going to be killed. She just assumed she's going to be killed. Now, where do you get people like that? Well, that's mm -hmm. a first century. She's a first century Christian. I love it. And I, it's, I, you have to bring her on the show because she'll just throw things at you and, and you think I'm hard, Dan, wait till you have her. She'll throw you in your face. <laughs> She's an amazing because she'll hold you right accountable to everything you say. But because of the fact you have to be tenacious uh, in mm -hmm. when you're taking, talking with Muslim, you have to be as tenacious as they are. Uh, and, and this is something I've had a hard time getting across to a lot of British Christians. They think we need to be meek, mild and timid like Christ was. And I think, uh, and I always say, well, the Christ that you're talking about is a European Christ. He's not the Christ I read in scriptures. 
because he was anything but meek and mild. Look, why was he overturning the tables in the temple? And what about Matthew 23 when he called us Pharisees, you hypocrites, you den of vipers, you white sepulchers? The whole way through the chapter, that's the cry in Christ I'd like to follow because that's the kind of Christ that got things done. Or Paul, look at Paul, what a great example. So I will be back at Speaker's Corner. Uh, anytime I come through, I'll try to get, make sure I get on the ladder again. But that's something now I've given over to much better, more capable people mm -hmm. like Hatu Tush. Yeah, uh, there was a sort of another speaker's corner one somewhere up the the line of just, and I guess you've touched on it a little bit um, with your your sort of pointing to the mockery of Muhammad in one corner and the sort of historical critique in the other, and I guess just just maybe to, to delve into that a little bit. What what are your thoughts? on what you see happen i mean do you keep up with what's happening in speaker's corner at the moment in the terms of um i mean hutton taking a holy quran <laughs> into speaker's corner uh which is terrifyingly brave <laughs> until it's like walking into the lion's den with something to stir it up and so i'm just wondering your your thoughts on that like it's one thing to stand on a ladder and say here's a here's 30 qurans what are you going to do about it it's quite another to go in with a and maybe that's a question for Hatun, but I was just wondering what your your opinion on that. Is that what you mean by bordering on hate speech? Is that just polemic? Yeah, she does two things. She doesn't just do that. She also holds up pictures of Muhammad with under underwear on mm. and uh, dirty underwear and flies flying around it. Uh, and that, uh, that I think has gone too far. I, I do not agree with Hatun. I told her to take those down because that is mockery. Yeah, There's no reason for that. Now, when she held up the Charlie Hebdo cartoons, I had no problem with that. Yeah. We held up. We did it all the time. She and I used to do that. When Charlie Hebdo was first, when those people were all killed, the very next Sunday, we held up each one of those those cartoons to show what is it about these that is worth being killed for. Why is it? And then we also showed all the other Charlie Hebdo cartoons that were against Christianity, which were much more, much more belittling and much more inflammatory. And nobody is asking anybody to kill people for these cartoons. So we did that as an example. And I had no problems when she started to do that, when this, um, this French... Uh, this this French um, teacher got beheaded a few a few months ago. Uh, she took down the Charlie Hebdo cartoons and said, "Why should a man be beheaded for this?" I like that. What mm -hmm. I don't like is what she's doing now. And I will say this: she's heard me say this. I don't care for her. You uh, having uh, these other cartoons that are belittling Muhammad in, in dress, you know, uh, uh, making him look like a girl, or these songs that she's having everybody do uh, mm -hmm. to mock Muhammad. I think that's that is bordering on hate speech. And I don't know how she defends that. Maybe you can ask her. I would not do that. I don't think it's right. No. As far as the holds in the Quran, I support that. Because that is symbolically the best thing you could put up there. Mm -hmm. Holes in the narrative. What is the Yasad Qadi mean? Well, drill holds in the Quran, and that's the holds we're talking about. So there is the symbolism of everything he's just saying. That's a beautiful symbolic act of exactly what he said in that 25-minute uh, that interview on June 8th. And that's why it's it's brilliant, it's right on, and it absolutely should be allowable at Speaker's Corner. Mm -hmm. If you cannot yes. put a Quran like that at Speaker's Corner, where else can you do it? Remember, it's the only place on earth where we can do that. We can't do that in America. You'd be shot to pieces here. Too many guns. You guys don't have guns there. Yeah. That's why you have a Speaker's Corner. It's the last bastion of freedom of speech. That's why I used it for 25 years. For 25 mm -hmm. years, I used Speaker's Corner to, to field test all our newest material. And yeah. she is doing that right now. And that's where you can actually push the envelope. And she is pushing the envelope. And as you say, Phil, she has courage. She has an amazing amount of courage. I've never met somebody who has the courage that she has. Mm -hmm. She gets 
you know, the fact when she got beaten up a few weeks ago, there I mean, only she got slapped and knocked unconscious. Yes, that's, the first right, time, yeah. that's the first time in eight years that's ever happened to her. Yeah. Uh, and that was that was for, fortunately that was on film. Yeah. Listen, we got beat up much worse than that. The, the guys get beat up all the time. The girls, they don't touch. And the guy that did it to her was a lone wolf. I don't think he knew what he was doing. I think he was just reacting out of anger. It was mm. not intentional. Um, and she didn't press charges. But, you know, in some ways, that, that has been blown up way much longer, more than it should be. Because look what she did. As soon as she got beat up, as soon as she came to, what did she do? She just kept on preaching as if nothing happened. Yeah. And yeah. that's what you must do. Mm -hmm. Whenever I got beaten up, when they try to open up my throat here, uh, and when they try to, when they broke my glasses, I never would talk about it. I just get up and just keep talking as if nothing happened. You don't make, you don't make that the object of your lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Because if that becomes the object, then you become the object or your the violence becomes the object. Then you've lost, you've lost the, you, you've lost the, um, uh, mm. the initiative. You've lost the narrative. And that's yeah. why we've, I trained a Putin to do this. Never, ever, you know, the abuse they're giving you. In fact, don't even worry about the person standing in front of you. Worry about the camera. Always look at the camera. Because it's the people in the camera you're trying to convince. The crowd that's there is a rent a crowd. You need that crowd there. They're 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 useful idiots. You need them to say the things they're saying. You need them to react the way they're reacting. You need them to make the noise because that gives you that not only is that entertaining value, it also shows them that these are very real questions that's bothering them. But you never let that become the message. Always, always, always make sure that what they're hearing in the camera, but because that's the one that's going up in line, that will be there forever, and that message will be will be one of the ones that convince people of how hopeless this religion is, and how mm. hopeless that book is, and how hopeless that man was. Dan, you're going to ask a question. No, no, no. I, I was going to say some more stuff about um, Hatton and and mm. the things she was doing, but I think that's probably best left until we are yeah. able to. Uh, Jay's able to put us in touch with her so we can have her to, to chat with her. I think that would be a, a lot of fun. You need to yeah. bring her on. She could she could answer this much better and ask her the question you just asked me and tell her yeah. that I disagree with her on those those cartoons the cartoons that she's yeah. putting up. She knows it already. I text her. I says get those get those down. This you are going beyond what you should be doing. And yeah. be, and I think the difficulty in some this is the way I think is happening is sometimes you get caught in. Listen, I know this. I was at Speaker's Corner for twenty five years. I counted it how many times I'd been there. Over a thousand. 300 times I went to Speaker's Corner. That's an awful lot of time to be there. And I remember when I when in, in, in the early years, in the 1900s, 1990s, sorry, there was no one with us. We were all alone. It was 10 to 1 ratio. And back then, I remember, we all, I would use what Hutton was doing. I would do that. And you get, you kind of one-upmanship. You're always trying to get one-up better than what you did last week. Or you try, and it became a, a we against the person. Now, that was long before smartphones or the internet uh, or you know, uh, live streams was available. So nothing was going on the internet. That was all happening. Mm -hmm. You had to engage with the person in front of you. With smartphone, you don't have to engage with the person in front of you. You can control it. And that's why being on a ladder was brilliant because you can control the discussion and you control the narrative, but you're talking to not just a few hundred people around, you're talking to thousands, thousands in, yeah. in, the, in the long run now, it's up to 6 million that I've, I've talked to. So you can, you're talking to millions. And that's why you must always make sure you always make sure who your audience is. Ask her that question. That'd be a good one to ask her. Be yeah. aware of that. So we've got, we've got uh, one more question that's connected to your debate with David Wood, and then we'll probably start uh, wrapping things up. But um, in your debate with David Wood, you said that the stories about Muhammad were based on someone else's life. I don't think we've touched on that. Uh, no, that's, 
that's the Ilyas Ibn Kabisa, but that's not even true. I, I don't, and I, I, if I said that in debate, I didn't mean that. It's not based on Ilyas Ibn Kabisa. It's just that that's the first Muhammad that we see in the seventh right. century, oh, yeah. and so therefore all the references to Muhammad in the seventh century from other sources are probably talking about that Muhammad. The Muhammad oh, yeah. that was finally existed in the ninth century is totally based on a narrative that was coming out of the Abbasid environment. Now David's rebuttal to that was well these are embarrassing stories why would you create embarrassing stories about your greatest your your greatest model and your paradigm that doesn't make sense therefore it suggests to him that that would mean that he is the historical muhammad and i said no 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 he made the same he made the same claim when he debated robert spencer robert spencer in 2012 in fact he hadn't changed the 10 examples he gave to robert spencer were the same 10 examples he gave to me i couldn't believe it hmm. i was there with a blank sheet of paper hoping that i would write down all kinds of things as he went first I didn't put a pen to paper on that empty page, page of paper because I just picked up all the questions he asked to uh, Robert Spencer and I just ticked off each one. He just went through the same 10. He hadn't learned anything in eight years. Wow. And when you look at the 10 embarrassing stories, eight of them were not embarrassing. So he has sex with a, a seven-year-old and he's 53-year-olds. That's quite, that's quite ennobling. If you are the prophet, you're going to have sex with young girls because that means you're virile. So he has sex with 15 women. That shows your virility. Anybody in the ninth century, what David was doing is he was looking at these stories with Christian eyes. Mm -hmm. You cannot look at ninth century environment character from with Christian eyes and assume that these are embarrassing. These are not embarrassing, and that's why Muslims are not listening to David. When he talks about all these embarrassing stories, Muslims, well, what's embarrassing about that? Our prophet was virile. Why wasn't Jesus virile like this? Yes, our prophet. And when David said, well, what about all the what about all the times he was attacked by demons and he wanted to commit suicide? That shows that he's weak. No, 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 no. Take a look at all the stories of our prophets. Every one of them, they had attack after attack after attack. They can't resolve the attack and they were victorious. In every one of these, you always, the hero always gets attacked by demons or evil spirits or he wants to commit suicide. He works through it and comes out the other end as victorious. That's how you portray a hero. That's how you portray anybody that's a man of God. So these are not embarrassing. They may seem embarrassing to you, but not embarrassing to an Arab living in Iraq, living in what is today Iraq in the ninth century, when all these stories were then finally being put to paper. And then there's also the, the only two that he could come up that were actually difficult for him. They're not difficult for me, was the story of Zaid and Zainab. Zaid and Zainab, that could be that is absolutely embarrassing for those of us who are Christian, because here he takes the wife of his son, his adopted son, and then it says that 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 he could no longer have him as an adopted son. So therefore, it says that in chapter thirty-three of the Quran, therefore Muhammad is not the uh, father of any of you. That is a political statement. That's absolutely political because you have this whole divide between the Sunnis and the Shiites that were coming to fore there in the ninth century between those who were further east, the Iranians, and those who are in Iraq. The Sunnis are in Iraq. The Iranians are in the further east, and they still are there today. That's where the Shiites come from. They're in Iran, further east. And there's this whole this big discussion as to who carries the mantle of this prophet Muhammad. Should it be from his line, his own lineage, his own children? His own progeny, or should it be from those the ulema, those who are who are then elected by the the religious leaders, which means could come from any line. And the Sunnis have always said it must be by the ulema, whereas the Shiites have said no, it must come from the line of the Prophet. If that is a difficulty, then you've got to have the story of Zaid and Zani there to shut that down, to show that Muhammad is a prophet is a, is the father of none of you. That's a Sunni argument. That's a political argument. It is also a theological argument, if you want to say so, because it then shuts down the Shiites from ever ever claiming 
uh, succession. But can you see that's perfectly legitimate on that in that case? The satanic verses is something that I think that's the other one that he brought up. The satanic verses in chapter 53, verse 19 and 20 is a easy one to answer because that was one that was in the Quran and that comes from the Umayyad period. And those are the goddesses, those are the Nabataean goddesses. Alat al Malat and Aluza. Aluza is the wife of Al Dushara, who is the, the 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 great god, the great god, the creator. He has a wife whose name is Al-Uzza, but the Dushara's generic title is Allah or Ilaha, from where Allah comes from, the hmm. God. His wife's generic title is Alat. Again, generic title, the goddess. It's the feminine form of Allah, Ooh, tu, 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 tu. <laughs> which means, therefore, that Allah of the Quran has a wife. Ooh, I love that one. How could God be one if he has a wife? So you can see the difficulty here. And that's why it was already in the Quran. It was there in chapter 53. So what did the Abbasids did? They said, ah, this is Satan that, that, that actually, this Satan was actually usurped you and seduced you. That's why it's known as the Satanic Verses. They had to make sense of it because it was already written in the 8th century. This was written in, with, well, they, they were, uh, you, you might say, they were then given the Quran. The Quran already was there. Now, as you can see, was go, was all over the kingdom, was all over that part of the world. They had to, they could excise those verses. So the story is, Satan usurped you. So that was the way to help understand what was going on. Now, as you said earlier, the Muhammad that they had even, the Muhammad of the ninth century was a very weak Muhammad. He had these problems. The Muhammad of today no longer is weak because he has to be greater than Jesus. Why? Because if you look at the Quran, you will see that Jesus does all kinds of things that Muhammad can't do. Mm -hmm. He can create out of nothing. He can do miracles. He can heal the sick, give sight to the blind. He can even resuscitate the dead. Muhammad can do one thing. So how do you make him greater? You make sure that he has nothing. You make sure that uh, that, that today, you now make sure that he is able to be inimitable. And so that became, he starts taking on a grand, uh, grandize uh, character and authority. So when David Wood brought these up in the debate, I was kind of surprised that he hadn't really moved on since 2012. And I was also surprised that he was still saying that these are important. You wouldn't write these. And you know, if you're going to use that criteria, let's look at, at Jesus of, the, of Christianity. You notice that Jesus of the first century was a pretty decent guy, wasn't he? But if you're going to say the later traditions of Jesus are better than the earliest traditions of Jesus, why don't we go to the Gnostic writings like the the Gospel of Infancy of, of Jesus, of, of Thomas, Thomas, the Infancy yeah. Gospel of Thomas, written in 180, 180 AD, two centuries, about 150 years later. That reference of Jesus, if you look at that there, he uh, uses his magical powers to spoil people, to play tricks on them, even to kill people. Now, is that the Jesus you'd rather go to? That's an embarrassing Jesus. If he's an embarrassing Jesus, why don't we use that as our criteria for Jesus rather than the earliest one? Because why? The historical test is you always go to the earliest material. You always go to the Jesus of the first century of the gospel accounts, not to the second century, late second century. So David needs to be careful. If he's going to say that the later ones are actually more authoritative than the earlier ones that we have on Muhammad, then I would suggest that he, he must be consistent and do the same thing with Jesus. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Uh, Dan, go for it. Okay, listen, we are going to go, and I oh. they are waiting for me because we've gone three hours. So this yeah. may be a good time to, to bring it to you. Yeah, 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 no worries. Thank you so much, Jay. It was, uh, was like a roller coaster of fascination. <laughs> that was so much. <laughs> really interesting. That's going to give me um, – I've taken down a lot of the, the book recommendations and things, the books that you've, you've mentioned throughout. Um, but, yeah, really interesting. It's really helped um, just explain just – 
help me understand some of what I've been listening to and, and, and reading. So I really appreciate that. Um, you know, I look forward to speaking to Muslims about about the uh, the thirty um, Arabic Qurans and which which one is uh, which one's in heaven. <laughs> That's a really helpful argument. I'll use it. Uh, yeah, fairly soon when I've uh, chatted. So um, let's let's close out. Thanks everyone for watching, and uh, we've we've hit our our record length. I think with. Uh, Neil Shenvey was the only one that's gone on this long. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Jay. Really appreciate all the knowledge that you've shared. And um, we'll, we'll close it off there. If you'd like to support the show in any way, feel free to share, like, subscribe, do all those things. And there's a patreon.com critical witness if you're interested. Um, I hope you found this really useful. And do share it with anyone that you come across who thinks that the, the Quran and Muhammad are... Uh, worthwhile things to build your life on uh, and then tell them about Jesus because that's what we Can I just say uh, one thing in, in closing yeah please don't do say what I have said don't go on the attack like we do that let Hatun Tosh myself David Wood that's our job please don't you become polemical yeah. please don't do that it's not your job don't think you need to do what we do we are polemicists we're trained to do that we know the material we've had experience all I ask that you do is you just defend Jesus Christ Sounds just good. defend Jesus Christ Defend the Bible and defend Jesus. Be defend your book and your man. And if you want to come on board, if you do want to learn this material, then then take our courses. We have uh, Beth's one truth, uh, uh, one truth course, uh, uh, one truth project course, and also I we now have put together a master's degree that we have not been running. We just got it running on April uh, October. Uh, 26 it just began we now have a three-year master's course that you can mm. take online you can ask me about it i'm the director of that we have now five major teachers uh 36 units and you can get a master's degree and all this apologetics and polemics it's the first one in the world and it uh, comes from veritas international university in california sounds good yeah thanks for that and um where would they contact you for that to if they're interested just to share I'll on I'll give you the I'll give you the email of the email. It's uh, V E S at. Uh, hold on, make sure I got it right. Just keep we can, add it. I bring it we, we can add it later. Don't worry too much. Okay, it's uh, V E S at edu dot. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to say org or com. I don't know off the top of my head. But no I, worries. Just keep. We'll we'll stop there. And what we'll do is I'll put it there and I'll give it to you. But just inquire about that. I'm sorry, I should have had it uh, at my. No, it's all right. It's just on the off chance that you did. That's all good. So thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, have a very good night. We'll end there. See you later. Are you not thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you hear, please do give us a subscribe on YouTube or follow us on any of the social media out there and give us feedback, get in touch, let us know what you think. If you really enjoyed the content and want to support it, find us on patreon.com.